I'm going to cut the normal intro tonight. Uh, welcome, everybody, to our daily gun show. Come to you live every weeknight at midnight Eastern, and we talk about guns, usually for about an hour. Uh, each night, we talk about a different, or we have a different focus, a different subject, and on Mondays, it's uh, 2A uh, motivation and uh, behind the scenes. Whenever possible, I try to have people on to have an interview, and I was just talking to Jake and as people might know, uh, if you've never watched the show before, uh, I try to do this interview to give people, especially Second Amendment activists, an opportunity to chat about why they do what they do and how they do what they do. So I'm about to introduce Jake from Walk the Talk America. I'm going to take the lead from a podcaster I liked called um, J James Kalita. He would just start the interview off and let the person go for like however long they talked. And I really like that. It just got like a kind of a off the top of somebody's head, you know, just whatever was on their mind. It was a great interview style, but I don't want to leave you hanging. So I'll introduce Jake here and then give you, you know, some time to chat about briefly, because I think everybody that's listening knows what you've been up to and what you do. But for people that are brand new, maybe take just a couple of 10 minutes to let us know what you do. And then I'm going to ask you the big question of why you're doing what you're doing. So thanks for joining us. And uh, Jake from Walk Talk America. Yeah, I appreciate the platform. Uh, for anybody who's curious, the last name is pronounced Wiskirchen. Um, and patron in the dark, I agree. I'm exhausted. He says, helping kid do history homework. <laughs> and I'm looking at myself in my own like uh, video feedback. I'm like, man, I got bags under my eyes. <laughs> I just finished eight days in Florida. I shouldn't look this tired, but it is, uh, you know, uh, nighttime. So uh, thanks for I, I the, I the opportunity. appreciate you coming on at nine, yeah. uh, nine yeah, for yeah. Up in this part of the country, but it's midnight Eastern. I do that honestly because I normally start the show off with the radio uh, soundbite from Red Dawn, where they say it's uh midnight so I, I just started doing it at midnight and now i kind of like it because i don't have to fight with anybody for the time slot yeah. it goes long it can go long but it is an ask to get people to show up for the show so even though you're in the nine o'clock time zone i do appreciate staying up for it here we are in radio free america the chair is against the wall um, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh yeah um I, uh, I actually am a night owl so i don't mind this one bit and um i, I appreciate it so uh, Jake Wiskirchen, Walk the Talk America, and uh, I own and operate an outpatient counseling facility here in Northern Nevada called Zephyr Wellness. I was born and raised in Northern Nevada. I'm a fifth generation Nevadan. I've lived a couple of different places, but this is this is home. And I'm a marriage and family therapist by license and by trade. And so I, I wear a bunch of different hats and we can talk about those things. But my my affiliation with walk the talk is, uh, the, the very brief short story is in 2019, I happened to be texting a friend whose mom owns a local range and retail store here called Reno guns and range. And it's, it's the, the preeminent, uh, range and retail store in, in town. And, uh, his name's Jordan and Jordan and I, uh, go back many, many years to college. We were an undergrad together in, in the fraternity and he uh, he manages the story and so for years we've been talking about this like guns counseling thing how do we make it work together we we had no idea and one day he texts me and says have you heard of walk talk america I said, no so i looked looked up the organization found mike uh, and i've i've had a podcast called noggin notes that deals with mental health exclusively uh which is broad and far-ranging but i was like man that's perfect i'm gonna have this dude on my show and so i did and then we became best friends and uh like inside of three months, I was in the organization writing content for trainings. And uh, if you don't know what Walk the Talk does, 
we're trying to bridge the gap between firearms ownership and mental health care uh, so that we prevent people from taking their own lives with guns, you know, by suicide. So uh, that's, that's the, the crux of it. And then it's rippled out into much more than that. So we're training practitioners like myself to be more competent and aware when we encounter firearms owners, including, you know, veterans and uh, active duty military law enforcement and so forth. And so we don't scare them away with our ignorance. And then the flip side of that coin is to demystify what counseling is and invite people in to get it and try to strip away some of the mythology behind it, but also some of the misinformation about what laws are, you know, uh, uh, potentially prohibiting your experience in getting mental health care. So that's me in a nutshell. Uh, thanks for having me. Great podcast. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Just kidding. It's not where it ends. <laughs> so um, no, it's awesome. Appreciate that. And thanks for being brief. Uh, like I said, I'm sure most people know who you are. And if you if you don't, then um, I, um, I usually try to put some uh, links below, not just to the uh, things that we're going to talk about today or that you're working with or the projects you're involved with. But uh, is there a podcast that you've done before that you consider the one that's like your go-to? Or did mm. you like ever do like a specific one just as an intro videos or something like that? Is there something like that? That's, that's tough. That's actually something we kick around with our marketing guy, Kevin, quite frequently. So I've been, uh, it's weird to say I'm a podcaster, but I guess I should because I've been doing it for like five years now. Uh, and then on top of Naga Notes, we do a walk the talk podcast called Guns and Mental Health. And we interview people and we talk about uh, pretty, pretty deep, uh, powerful stories that people bring in, not just related to suicide, but, um, you know, cannabis use. If they're a firearms owner and they use cannabis to alleviate you know, PTSD symptoms or anxiety or whatever. We talk about um, different treatments. We talk about uh, defensive shooting. We had Michael Waller on and he was, he was incredible, um, you know, talking about the, how he went through that. And so having this has brought me into a realm where, and I'm, I'm a very active on Twitter now too, and I've met a lot of really cool people from across the country and, and the world actually. And I've been on different shows and, and everyone's a little different uh, we talk about slightly different subjects or, or totally different subjects altogether. Um, but I think honestly that the, the one I did most recently was on somebody else's show. And if I could point them to that, it, there's two of them. One is a gal named Stephanie Wynn, uh, W-I-N-N. She goes by uh, uh, some therapist on Twitter. And the whole thing is you must be some kind of therapist. And that's her her gig. And that's the podcast. So she's got a great podcast uh, she's a, a marriage and family therapist up in Oregon. And I, I went on there to explain this whole guns and mental health thing. She's by her own self-disclosure, a former raging leftist liberal who's seen the light and come to the center, so to speak, and um, is now curious about all sorts of subjects. And one of which is how do guns and mental health coexist in the same uh, environment? And I said, well, very simply, they do. And we have to acknowledge that. And so I, I think I did a pretty good job explaining everything to her. And then on a, on another show called disaffected, which is hosted by a guy named Josh Slocum, Joshua Slocum. Um, that's a very, very, very good show. If you're interested in mental health stuff and especially personality disorders, Josh, Josh is not a clinician. And I've, I've always told people that I listen very, very closely with a highly critical ear to non-clinical people talking about clinical matters, but Josh is so good at what he does talking about uh, personality disorders and specifically the cluster B type, uh, which is our, you know, narcissism, borderline, histrionic and antisocial or, you know, what most people call sociopaths or psychopaths that I just became totally hooked. And I, I shot him off an email and said, I appreciate what you do. And I probably couldn't do it myself as well as you do. 
and I've been on his show a few times, but we just did one where he interviewed me about the firearms thing. And he was, uh, he was somewhat unfamiliar, has become more familiar again, another, you know, self-identified highly leftist, uh, most of his life and has come to, to the center and is now, he says, I, I, I didn't think guns were a thing. I thought they should all go away. And, you know, now I find myself completely advocating for the second amendment because it is the thing that defends all our rights. So those two shows that were just done in the last uh, half month or so, I think I would point people to outside of that. Uh, professionally, I talk a lot about emotional functioning and I think emotional functioning forms the foundation of how we interact with our worlds, with our, um, with all our interactions with people or relationships. And if you want to learn about that, uh, go to the Zephyr wellness website and watch the emotional functioning videos that I've done. We have a YouTube channel. It's Zephyr has a YouTube channel for one guy on it. The guy's me, but like we have a YouTube channel. And so I try to put out uh, content, um, so people can, can understand how they work, how their brains tick, how their minds function. And my whole goal uh, you know, you, you let off by saying, you know, we ask what the why is, why do you do what you do? And I, I'm a big fan of that, uh, because one of my big influences in my life, and I'll mention him in, you know, in a, in a little bit has always hammered the, the principle of intentionality, which is the spirit of acting with great purpose, knowing why you do what you do. And my why for, for this whole thing, why I'm in mental health, why I stepped out of the closet as a gun owning clinician, which is another thing we can talk about is because I want to see the world better. I want to see a healthy, healed community. And I live in Nevada. It is Nevada for those of you on the East Coast. It's not Nevada. There's no H or W in the middle of the name. It's (laughs) Nevada. Um, But we're dead last in behavioral health care rankings for years and years and years. And I I hate that. Like I said, I'm uh, many generations into Nevada now. And I don't want my kids growing up in the same crappy situation that I grew up in where we're getting bullied on the playground and nobody does anything. Or, um, I watch you know, couples in the aisle, of the grocery store fighting and, uh, you know, nobody does anything and there's no services, there's no resources, there's no place to go. And we lack the political will and capital to do anything about it. I want to change that. And the way I want to change that is to put information out in the public so people can solve their own problems and stop coming through the door of my clinic. And it sounds a little counterintuitive as a small business owner to be like, no, I want to work myself out of a job. I, <laughs> I do though. I'd, I'd literally be completely happy working any other job it, to pay my bills if it meant that I was working in a functional, health, healthy community. So that's why I want people to learn about their emotions. I want people to learn about these tips and techniques that I went to graduate school for. I want to, I want, I want to just push this out. It's not some proprietary parlor trick where I just want to sit in the corner rubbing my hands and twirling my mustache uh, as people stay on my calendar. Like that's, that's not appropriate. So um I want, I want as much, I want more podcasts. I want as much information out so people can digest it and go, Hmm, that guy makes a lot of sense. Uh, Maybe I'll find out more about this. And you, and you help heal yourself, you know, rectify your marriages, parent better, um, go to work, a happy, cheerful soul, you know, be productive, that kind of thing. That's, that's my why. And, and I don't know how we measure that. I know that we're probably failing (laughs) currently, but, but I'm not going to stop trying. In fact, it makes me angrier and it makes me try harder. 
Well, that's one of the, I'm making some notes here just so I don't, I don't like to interrupt you. I, I would interrupt people and I will interrupt you in the future, but in this first conversations with people, I try to let you just like, I, no, please, I please interrupt me. I tend to get on, on rants and soapboxes and I, I well, need no, that's, I think that, that's what I kind of want to do here though, is let, give people a chance to actually talk. Cause most of the time we end up having conversations where we do interrupt each other, but that kind of is what I was just going to say there is. Um, is there an example uh, that we can look at for a healthier culture or society or was there in the past or is there something to look at as an example or is it just theoretical hypothetical? You know, to, to quantify that, like to actually put measurement to it, I don't, I, th I think that's a, a disservice to what's going on presently. I, um, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson and I heard him say one time in an interview when somebody asked him, does he regret something or other. He said he, he paused for a very long time and he said, no, no, I'm not going to betray my former self. And I don't think we do ourselves any justice in today's world to look backward and say, oh, it'd be no, it'd be so nice if we could just be in the fill in the blank time period, because there's always exchanges. What, what are you giving up to get back what you wistfully long for? So I think we have to make do with what we have now. But what I will say is that we can pretty much ascertain with a high degree of certainty that we are going way too fast and consuming far too much content broadly. Uh, and it doesn't matter what kind, then we're developed to do. We, we have not evolved as a species to consume and operate as fast as we do. Um, and, and then you, you build in all the social pressures of uh, performance and accumulation and comparison and all that stuff. And it just makes things worse for us uh, mentally, spiritually, psychologically. And I do mean spiritually, because when we start to focus our attention on things that are fleeting, we tend to lose focus on things that are everlasting. And, and I don't care how you define that. I happen to follow Jesus. I'm a Christian, but it doesn't matter where you get your spiritual anchoring such that you have one somewhere because that's what that's where you return when the storms blow and the and the things start going sideways you go what what's my foundation where am i anchored and largely we've lost that because we've just become super distracted and that's you know we can pin it on social media we can pin it on instant gratification culture you know con consisting of google search results turned very quickly don't have to go to the library anymore all the way up to you know, Amazon drone delivery service or whatever, but it dates back to the microwave or, or the, the TV in the 1950s or, or subscription TV where you don't even have to watch commercials anymore. So like, there's lots of contributing factors to this and I, I see it all accelerating. Um, there's a really good Ted talk by a gal named Catherine Booskill, B-O-U-S-K-I-L-L. -L. Uh, she's a cultural anthropologist, but she studies modern culture. Uh, you know, most people think of anthropology as like, you know, history, uh, digging up bones and stuff, but she studies modern cultural anthropology. And, and she has a great Ted talk talking about how we're just not meant to keep up with today's pace. Everything's way too fast. So if I were to say, how do we get, how do we get healthy? What do we, to what do we compare? I think all we got to do is just slow down and return to gratitude. I think a lot of us become just and I'm guilty of it too. We've just become entitled and petulant and frustrated when we don't get things customized to our liking immediately. Um, and, and, and it's built into names of things. I mean, you think of like the iPhone, like I, I, me, right? Uh, my space, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, like, like everything's like you specific, precise, 
customized deliverable centered on you uh, and immediately. And so it's, it's so heavily what, what Carl Jung was a big, big name in our field uh, would call an introject, which is just an unquestioned belief or assumption that's been programmed into you. They're so we're so heavily introjected with this that we don't even bother to stop and question it. And then when we do, it's like all the chaos stops spinning and everything kind of makes a little more sense. But almost immediately, as soon as we do that, we're jerked out of it by some other thing clamoring for our attention. You know, the phone dings or the, 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 the roast is done in the oven or whatever. And it's like, whoop, out of that moment, onto the next thing. And it's like, go, 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 go. So I think if we just try to try to push pause, make our circles a little smaller, bring, bring back into family and community in a tighter, tighter circle. I think that's, that's super important. Um, well, I mean, and while I'm on it, while I'm ranting and you're allowing me to rant, um, I might as well say that in the emotional functioning component of things, if you, if you watch my videos, um, I talk a lot about shame and guilt and how they're designed in our brains to respond appropriately to the environment when we let somebody down. That's shame. <laughs> Excuse me. We, we fail to meet somebody's expectations. So we feel shame. Guilt says, go make it right. Well, that works really well because historically over the last you know 40,000 years or whatever that humans have been walking the earth in their current form, we needed to live in tribes. We needed the tribe because we have some certain resources and everybody else in the tribe has different resources. And we all pool our resources to make sure that we're moving forward, uh, weathering you know predator attacks and environmental change and all that sort of stuff. So we survive. And now in the last 12 to 15 years, very, very recently, uh, the tribe, quote unquote, I'll put that in air quotes for people who aren't uh, you know, watching the video. The tribe has expanded to what we would think of as a tribe roaming the Serengeti in, you know, 20,000 BC to everybody in the world. And that's been compelled upon us by our social media platforms and and even our, some of our, our communities that, that have nothing to do with social media, like um, neighborhood apps and PTOs and that kind of thing, where it's like, you can have an opinion, but if somebody you don't even know or care about or didn't even know existed until you formed the opinion pushes back and says, I don't like that. I'm offended by that. How dare you? Whatever. All of a sudden, our, our brain, our neurological limbic reflex says, uh-oh, you offended a member of the tribe. Go make it right. The problem is that person's not even in your tribe. They probably don't even care about you. They're just anxiety riddled or they, they've got their own issues or, or they just don't like your face. And if you put enough of that in front of a person, say thousands on a social media platform or millions, even if you got like lots of followers and you get lots of interactions that can cripple a person because they no longer are responsive to the people who matter in their world. They've made the mental mistake of thinking that the tribe is everybody and you're never going to please everybody. But behind it all is like, oh, my God, if I don't make everybody happy, I'm going to get kicked out of the tribe. And if I get kicked out of the tribe, I'll die because I don't have enough resources to live on my own. So that's a big problem. We need to acknowledge the, the shame, guilt response that we feel when somebody's like, I don't like your opinion. We have to consider the source of that and say to ourselves, do I care about this? And if I don't care, am I willing to withstand the blowback? And that just boils down to good boundaries. If, if I set good boundaries and I have good limits, I don't have to listen to everybody's opinion. Because the people around me, my, you know, as the Bible would say, the, the, the trusted council of, of, uh, of advisors is the one who matters. That's my family. That's my neighbors. That's my best friends. That's the people at work. And that's pretty much where it stops. You can have extended friends and associates and colleagues and so forth. But, but really, 
you start losing track of who's important when you're starting to chase limbic emotional responses to things that were never supposed to be there in the first place. And, and like, uh, like Catherine Booskill says, we just haven't evolved to, to absorb that much feedback, that much information. So that's actually pretty, that's a lot of good stuff. And I put some notes in there and normally I'm trying to fight the urge to, to pursue the tangents or what could be tangents there. Cause I do want, because we're right at the 20 minute mark and that gives us a good spot to just ask the open-ended why question. So, um, Go wherever you want, man. Like I'm, I'm, I don't really pull punches or hide things or like, like whatever you're no, curious you, about. You. No, I'm just trying to, to make the presentation, like stay consistent mm -hmm. so that uh, people get the opportunity to hear the how, the why and the how sure. from a group of people. But um, uh, like I say, we'll have other conversations in the future and I, I'll keep these notes. Um, just for example, I was just thinking there that when you said that the everything's going so fast, that sounds very much like I bet you people would have said back in the days of cars and maybe when cars went from Model Ts to, you know, the things that could go 100 miles an hour. Oh, and, and, you know, uh, maybe now even when, I don't, you know, there's other technologies, I'm sure that people have said, oh, wow, we're going too fast. Maybe when we can start yeah. going in mechanical boats or something, maybe even riding horses. I'm sure somebody was walking and going, I don't know why these people have to ride around on these horses all the time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, where uh, is the limit, right? <laughs> but uh, without getting into those kind of tangents in this conversation, then so to talk here, which is your origin story, so to speak, uh, you came in from the medical field and for people, I'm, I'm trying to really assume that people, I'm, I'm depending on the assumption that people know about walk the talk America, Mike and your relationship with him and, how you came at came to it and you kind of described there literally how you became aware of it and then your involvement with walk and talk america but that's one of many things you've been uh involved with and um one of your many projects so the question is i try to make it open-ended what's the why behind it i am i'm angry um <laughs> in like a bruce banner sort of way uh i i I mentioned earlier, I teach emotional functioning as a very large portion of what I do, uh, a por portion of what I do. And uh, anger is one of our 10 core emotions. And the, the purpose of anger uh, through through the research that I've studied is that it's supposed to motivate us to go make change. Um, if we act appropriately out of our anger, it, there should be a targeted um, effort in some direction. And the, the analogy I always use is like, if I'm pissed off every day I come into work, I should probably go find a new job. That's a that's a motivation to make change. Uh, if I'm angry at what Congress is doing, uh, yeah, I, I could write a letter that that might alleviate some of it. But really, if I if I'm serious about it, I have to make some sacrifice. I got I got to run for Congress, right? I got to unseat my congressman. So um, real functional anger requires great sacrifice and that's not to be confused with activism which i i would try to differentiate action from activism action takes like tons and tons of sacrifice you can't you can't be actionable from your keyboard typically the the people who are like oh, i lend my voice it's like yeah okay but what are you what are you sacrificing a couple hours in the evening that you would have spent doing something else you know like action is like you set aside what you'd prefer to do because you want to go make a difference for the betterment of the whole. And yeah, there's some enlightened self-interest there because you are part of the whole. Um, but ultimately 
I'm, I'm angry. And the reason I'm angry is because I mentioned before, Nevada's last at everything you don't want to be last at um, or near the bottom, you know, education, you education funding. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, mental health care, health care broadly, access to everything. Uh, it, it's it's. I love, love, love my state for all that it has to offer. Um, but we are we we can't recruit talent for for business and industry we can't retain the talent when we graduate from the colleges and universities like it's it's really it's it's not a good environment and unless somebody comes in with a bunch of money from out of state and really drives policy nothing really changes and that you see a lot of that in vegas um so for those of you who don't know the geography of nevada Vegas is Clark County. It's down at the point, down in the southern tip. Reno is the other population center up in the north, um, in the elbow of Nevada on the left-hand side, if you're looking at a map, um, near Lake Tahoe. And that's what governs Nevada. And forever, it was Reno governed Nevada until, I don't know, the 1970s or so. Vegas started to have more of a foothold. And then it grew and grew and grew into the 90s and 2000s. And now Vegas pretty much runs all of Nevada. Uh, so... The reason that is important is because, yeah, nice, good picture in Nevada. I'm up there in the elbow. Um, the reason that's important is because people who come to a place from somewhere else usually do so for their own interests. They're not interested in necessarily changing the broader culture. They want to make their money, and that's casinos do that. Business and industry does that. If they happen to make some change along the way, that's that's cool, but that's not their primary goal. Me, having lived here and watch this stuff unfold. Uh, my primary goal is actually other centered. It's not self-centered. It's the inversion. If I make some money along the way, then great. And that's probably not some advice I would give any business owner. Um, but for example, I run Zephyr Wellness like a nonprofit. I try to put more money into the company that I take home. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a high, high degree of sacrifice. Well, one of those sacrifices I made was several years ago, I was angry at my licensing board because they weren't doing the right thing. They weren't following the law. They weren't uh, following open meeting law. They were playing professional territorial games with licenses and all sorts of just bad stuff that gets way into the weeds and nobody cares about. But local thing or a state thing? It was a state thing. So every state has licensing, occupational licensing boards that govern, govern certain occupations. And ostensibly, the reason you have a licensing board is that the state gives its stamp of approval to minimum competence for that profession, whether it's contractors or doctors or nurses or lawyers or whatever. So my licensing board was doing lots and lots of wrong things and everybody knew it, but they were also kind of the mob. <laughs> it was like, you don't take on the licensing board because they will disappear you. And there were lots of stories to go around to substantiate that. So everybody just kind of kept quiet. And I was like, no, this is bullshit. Like I was raised through school to understand laws and bylaws very, very well. And I knew our state's laws and I studied them and I was like, no, they can't, they can't keep doing this. Somebody's going to have to say something. And I was doing this as a, as a lowly intern and my supervisor was like, you're not going to speak until I'm done with you. Cause I don't want my license dragged through the mud with you. I said, that's fine. And uh, then eventually I got fully licensed and I started filing letters of complaint with the licensing board. And then I found myself on the licensing board and I was like, well, that happened sooner than I thought. And I was like, well, here we go. Got to get some work to do. So I ended up rewriting, helping rewrite most of our laws. And along the way, I, uh, and I promise this is going somewhere and it'll, it'll conclude, but along the way, I lost a ton of peer colleagues because here's the, here's the dynamic in our profession. Marriage and family therapists, licensed professional counselors, social workers, 
psychologists, psychiatrists who are MDs, medical doctors, they don't always play nice in the sandbox. And then there's the drug and alcohol counselors. Uh, there's this weird professional turf war that goes on saying that, you know, I do this thing better than you do, and therefore we must fight about it. And it's very weird. Um, and I, I truly believe that that's why mental health care has been pushed to, to aside for so long is because we simply can't get on the same page to go lobby, for example, for higher interest, for higher reimbursement rates from insurance companies. So anyway, we fight. And there's two professions governed by the same licensing board, professional counselors and marriage and family therapists. I happen to be a marriage and family therapist. Professional counselors weren't given their full scope for a long time. We weren't, uh, they weren't allowed to treat couples and families, for example, in the state of Nevada. It's the only state to do such a thing. Why are we dead? <laughs> Excuse me, I just swallowed a bug. I'm sitting outside. <clears throat> Might take a minute. <clears throat> there we go. All right. The gnat is gone. Um, so it's like, well, why are we dead last in things? It's like probably because we don't allow people to practice to their full scope like they can in every other state. So I changed that. And it was uh, to the great dissatisfaction of many of my peer marriage and family therapist colleagues, if you can believe such a thing, right? Like you'd think that we all are into this together. We're all just healing people. We want we want people to be better. Nope. It's like, no, we do it different than they do it. And they shouldn't be doing it the way we do it. And it's like harumph, harumph. So that incurred a lot of wrath. I lost a lot of peer colleagues. Well, I went through that crucible and it was great and awful simultaneously sucked away three years of my life, uh, neglected my family, um, barely held my business together. I have no idea how I did it. Grace of God, power not on my own. Uh, so fast forward from 2016 to 2019, I meet Mike Sedini. And I'm a concealed carry permit gun-owning clinician. And I have him on the podcast. And one of the things, I totally forgot about this until he told me about it like two months ago. I said... <laughs> Uh, we could talk about all your organization stuff, but, but we can't mention that I'm a gun owner. He's like, okay. <laughs> he thought that was weird. <laughs> it felt weird coming out of my mouth. And then later I realized I, this is such an important thing that if I'm experiencing what other gun owners experience and I'm one of the professionals, I can't half it. I can't, I can't straddle the line. So I was like, well, I probably lost all the peer colleagues I'm going to lose for my career doing that licensing board thing. I should probably just come out of the closet as a gun owning practitioner and lose the rest of them if they care. And what happened was exactly that. Uh, but also a whole bunch of other people came out of the woodwork and were kind of whispering like, Oh man, I didn't know you were a gun owner. Me too. Uh, how do you, how do you do that? I'm like, how do I do what? Like I'm honest with people. It's like, what do you mean? Like, how do I, it was so bizarre, but that's how we've been in, indoctrinated is to don't talk about that thing or this thing, um, comply, bow, kiss the ring of all the, the, the professors and the, and the gray haired people that, that mentored us in the profession. And, and it's very weird because our profession is supposed to be about challenging things and pushing people out of their comfort zones and questioning our own uh, understandings and beliefs and lifelong learning and non-judgmentalism. And it's like, oh my God, you're none of those things. You're, you're very rigid and you're very myopic and you don't welcome people in. Um, and you're very highly politically motivated. So I realized I had to, to take the step forward and, and be something that n didn't exist. And, and lo and behold, here we are three years later in 2022, and I still survey the landscape and the emails I get and the and the the instant messages from uh, or the direct messages on social media from from Twitter from Instagram, it's like, hey, I love what you do. I'm a 
social worker in such and such state, or I'm, I'm a licensed professional counselor in another, you know, whatever state. I love what you do. Um, but I can't, I can't do what you do because my, my boss will fire me or it won't be welcomed here. And I'm like, Oh my God, you're part of the problem. Like you, we have to, we have to be bolder than that if we're really going to advocate. And if we want to stop people from losing their lives, and I don't necessarily just mean by, by gunshot or, you know, end up in the actual physical grave, but like people lose their lives all the time through addiction, through broken marriages, through separation from their kids, because they, they are not willing to get it together because the fear of judgment from people like me, like, dude, we got it. We got to get it together. So the why is I want to move the needle on not only firearm suicide, negligence, all that stuff, but also the ripple effect into families and businesses and culture of organizations and professions like law enforcement, like military veterans, like plumbers and pipe fitters, attorneys, um, frontline medical doctors, physicians, EMTs, all the tough people of the world who have been told through either explicit or implicit uh, verbiage and training, it's not okay to be weak. You're not allowed to cry. You can't ask for help because yeah, we're going to call you a, a wuss or you might not get that promotion or you're going to be deemed unfit for duty or whatever it is. Like that has to stop. It has to stop. And the only way it's going to stop is if people like me step forward and say, hey, I'm here for you. I'm a dude. I cry. I teach emotions. I'm 6'1", 200 pounds. I look like a linebacker and I got bullied for 12 years of my life and it wrecked me. And I probably ended up with a personality disorder out of it, <laughs> like, uh, but I got through it and, and I can, I can show you the way also. And I know there's more people out there who can do that. If we're just courageous enough to face our own damn peer colleagues who are keeping us in the shadows, it's not okay. Um, you, know, you know, we talk about mental health stigma. It's like, where does it come from? It comes from us. We are the ones who stigmatize it. We're the ones who are teaching each other to, that it's not appropriate to be on social media. It's not appropriate to have a podcast, you, gotta, you know, uh, be super quiet about what you do and don't bring it up at a party. Like this is actually going on in graduate school. They actually teach us this stuff. It's crazy to me. Um, it's like, well, why don't people come in for care? It's like, I don't know. Cause we treat them like they're lepers. Like it, that's not cool, man. My dentist doesn't do that. He says hi to me. Our kids go to the same school. He doesn't ask me about my feelings. That would be a HIPAA violation, but he definitely says, hi, Jake. Nice to see you. And shakes my hand. My ortho, my my orthopedist does that. Um, my my physical therapist, like my financial advisor, and I go golfing. Like they all handle sensitive information. They're not weird about it. So why are psychotherapists weird about it? It's because we're trained to be weird. And I'm trying to change that because it matters to people. People are dying. Relationships are fracturing. Uh, kids are getting bullied on the playground because some parent somewhere is like, nope, I'm not taking my kid to the therapist because he's going to like pick up the bat phone of government and take my shit. Like, <laughs> That's not what we do. Most of us. Uh, and for the, the, some of us who do, they, they should be pushed out of the profession, but I don't get to control that. I get to control me and I get to control the message that I send. So my why is done out of, of anger, not just because I live in a state that's the worst at everything you don't want to be the worst at, but because I look around at my, my peer colleagues and they're just not moving. They're not, they're not recognizing the problem. They're not recognizing that, you know, out of one side of their mouth, they're saying guns are stupid and firearm violence is bad and, and gun violence by banning AR-15s. 
And at the other side of their mouth, they're going, suicide prevention is my thing. It's like, you do realize that almost two thirds of gun deaths are suicides, right? It's like, nope, doesn't compute. They don't want to hear it. So I'm, I'm trying to rattle cages and, and maybe change some minds and win some hearts. Hopefully it, hopefully it works. So far it's working. The, the gun community loves it. That's been the, that's been the blessing. Um, I've been a firearms owner my whole life, but I was never part of the community until I met up with, with Mike and uh, Rob Pincus and, and those guys. And I, I went to GRPC in 2019 and then shot in 2020. And the community absolutely welcomed me with open arms. No, no suspicion whatsoever. In fact, it was, if anything, it was like, they kind of like took two steps forward, one step back, kind of reached out, touched me to make sure I was real. <laughs> and then uh, uh, it was like, man, this is so cool. This is so refreshing. Uh, the clinical community, little, little chillier. Uh, but, but I don't care. I'll, I'll take the wins where I can get them. And, and if that gets people into treatment, then awesome. Right on. Well, that's a bunch of cool stuff. And for people that, uh, don't know the whole deal, um, you know, I talked to Jake about doing the, the conversation. Oh, I don't know. A couple of while ago, we scheduled it for today and then maybe a half an hour ago or an hour ago, I tried to attempt to say, I'm going to ask you two big questions, the why and the how. So he didn't have a lot of time to prepare for that um, answer. And that was awesome. So I really appreciate how you um, were able to explain, you know, the facets of that. So my one question is going to be, would you have done Walk the Talk America if you wouldn't have been in the situation to do the board and, you know, bring that stuff to the board first? Like if you wouldn't have already burned those bridges, so to speak. Or yeah, at I least don't know. <clears throat> gotten that yeah. right? Um, I want to back up to the how real quick. Um, the how is a little more precise than I shared. Um, I know, you know, I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And part of that is uh, conversations like this. And another part of oh, it sorry. is the why, why? Because we're about to talk. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you asked why and how, and I think, I think yep. that's legitimate. Oh. And I think the how deserves a Oh yeah, we'll spend yeah. the rest of the time talking about how. But go ahead. Oh, okay. go ahead. So, so the how is uh, what WTTA is doing with its training. So we 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 go in and we we train non-gun people or gun people if you're there. Uh, what gun culture is, and it's very very cool. And we have two free trainings that we've recorded and we posted on the website. We probably need to update them because the data have changed a little bit. But um, and we're we're a little better at it too. But it's hard to get me and Mike and Rob in the same room um, at the same time. But the the two free trainings on the website. If you know, if you're friends with anybody in the healthcare community who wants to understand gun culture, um, I think we do a really good job of of explaining a foundational understanding of it. So it's part one and part two. They're free. Take them. Uh, you get a little certificate, it spits out at you. And if you're in the healthcare community, sometimes you can get continuing education credit for that. That's good for your license renewal. Um, and then the flip side of the coin is I will go out and I'll teach counseling stuff and emotional functioning to firearms owners in, up to and including, uh, you know, manufacturers, retailers, ranges. And one of the things I'm working on right now, I've got it, I've got it conceptualized in my head. I was explaining this to Byron Byron, the instructor, last night on an Instagram thing. Uh, I want to create a PowerPoint that's just sort of a drop in, you know, 15 to 30 minutes that any firearms instructor who has watched my emotional function videos and knows what what they're talking about can work into a intro to gun CCW, CCW renewal class uh, that covers the basics of mental functioning. 
not mental health. It's not about that. It's about what, what does your brain do and why does it do it so that you can become more in charge of your decisions, your actions, your behaviors, and also your communication. It, it, hopefully, it'll, if we improve communication, we'll improve relationships. But just 15 to 20 minutes from a firearms instructor talking about stuff that was previously taboo, I think will go a long way to helping the community. And so the idea is to get that into a presentation form that people can easily digest, consume, and then regurgitate to their audience. That's the how. Uh, the how is also for through our, I'm wearing a bracelet. It says uh, WTTA.org slash love. You go to the website, anywhere on the website, but this particular slug takes you to free and anonymous mental health screenings. Go to owners love anonymous. Everybody loves free. So free and anonymous mental health screenings. These are powered by Mental Health America. And it's a great way if you're just like, man, I've been edgy for like weeks, it seems. Man, it just seems like weeks have been edgy. Dude, go to the website, take a screening, see where you are. If it feels like depression, take the depression screen. If it feels like anxiety, take the anxiety screen. Take them all. Uh, they're like three minutes a piece. It's super easy. And if the number that it spits out isn't something you like, well, maybe go seek professional care or at least go talk to your local bartender or your neighbor, right? So that's that's the how. And along with the how is getting the message out through the form of flyers in firearms boxes, fire, flyers on the counters at gun stores, that lead to the link that invite people passively into exploring what their brains are doing, what their minds are doing, how they're functioning. Take free and honest mental health screening, listen to a podcast, just know that you're not alone in the world. That's the how nobody else is having this conversation. Now they're starting to, which is awesome. I love that. But three years ago, this conversation literally didn't exist. We're, we're, we're still, I, I think we're still the only organization probably in the entire world that is doing mental health. I know there's organizations like hold my guns. It's like hold my guns in a period of crisis. That's fine. But there's no treatment aspect. There's no training aspect to that. And that's not to knock them. That's just to say we're we're pretty unique. And that's that's a pretty special thing. Um, and we're a nonprofit. You know, um, I'm blessed enough to have a, my salary generated by my employees at work so I can go and do things like this and not worry about taking hours off the calendar as a as a different kind of sacrifice. My sacrifice was already already paid for, you know, when I opened my company and spent five years broke. Um, but now I'm in a position to do this. So that's the how. And, and we want to be very precise about that. We want to be very diligent. So when we're flying across the country, giving these trainings to local um, you know, governmental health and human services agencies or retail stores or uh, ranges or instructors, we can say, you know, just like Rob Pincus will say, if you want want more about this, go to the, the personal defense network videos and you can learn it, right? We can say, you want more about this, go to the Zephyr Wellness page or the Walk Talk America YouTube channel and you can learn more about it. So that's the how. But um, getting back to your uh, your other question about like, what am I, you know, what, what how did I come into this and what are we doing? Um no, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. I was, that's not I was asking if you, if you would have done Walk the Talk America. Oh, what about, yeah, yeah, that's right. Healing if you wouldn't have already done <clears throat> some bridges on the way. Yeah, it, that's hard to say. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Timing matters. And at the time that I did the board thing, there were other things going on in my life, professionally, personally, that allowed me to do it. And I knew there'd be a benefit from it. It wasn't ego driven. I knew that um, it was because I I needed to make fundamental change. And part of it was like, I'm going to be working in this profession for the next 30 years and I can't operate under these conditions. So I have to go change them. So like I said, the enlightened self-interest. So if 
if if WTTA had graced my consciousness and it didn't exist in 2016 or 2015, but if it had, I probably wouldn't have because the it wouldn't have made any sense. I think things had to unfold the way that they did. Um, and and here's the cool part: there's there's other things that I don't want to get into right now, but I see it unfolding with other professionals around the country on different topics that have to do specifically with our profession. And I don't want to bore everybody with that, but I'm watching other people do essentially what I've done with WTTA and I, and I'm supporting them the best that I can by saying, you have to be this voice right now. Believe me, no one else is doing it. I'm behind you, but I have to be behind you. I can't be beside you or in front of you because I've got this other thing going on, but, but trust me, I've been through this. I've walked through these these fires, and I'll tell you how to avoid certain potholes the best that I can. And that's pretty cool. So it's not necessarily that I'm I'm leveraging my own experience for another own experience of myself, but I can I can reach out and connect with different people in different areas if that makes sense to say, hey, I've I've like seen kind of what non, you're going through. And, yeah, like in non gun owning stuff, like yep, yep. non gun owning stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Where where they're yeah. having to walk in two different worlds that seemingly contradict, or or they're just okay. facing a holy hellfire of. Pushback. That was one of my notes from before too. Was as you were describing the situation with the board and um, and then with Walk Talk America and bringing the aspect of the plight of gun owners, I guess, to the medical field. Um, I was going to say. Will that two A fight unravel un- unravel other facets in the medical community? So I don't know. Like I don't even know what that might be. But maybe let's say drunk driving. What if it turns out that nobody paid attention to you know there's some kind of a a reason why drunk drivers won't seek help because and yeah. and, and this makes it, this peels back something where everybody goes oh wait a minute if this is the case with gun owners then this might be the case you know maybe we can be better in other places. Yeah. Um, there's so much stigma. I mentioned, try to figure out how to phrase this. So I mentioned all those other professionals earlier, the, you know, the plumbers and pipe fitters, attorneys, firefighters, whatever. Um, they, they're not, they're not gun owners all the time, but they don't come seek help for the same reasons, which is they don't want to be judged. So for us, it's a, it's a personal constitutional right. It's a civil right. It's a property right. It's also for them, it's, it's the same stuff because their right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness the way that they see fit may be threatened if they're deemed by their peer colleagues to be quote unquote crazy or, oh, you're depressed. So therefore we can't have you uh, fly in the plane, right? Stuff like that. Well, you might crash into a mountain. Um, and that stuff's just not true. Data, data wise, we don't, we don't have data to substantiate that. It's all emotional based. I saw, uh, PNW Pacific Northwest Woods um, has has as he found that other professionals are anti-gun based on emotion or data. It's always it's always emotion. There's no data to back this up. Any data that you see coming from um, Giffords or um, every town, you know, the places that claim that they look at our research, look at our research. Like what if it's research? It's not your research. <laughs> like that's the first thing. Secondly, their studies are flawed. Uh, they cherry pick their data. They cross reference with places like Gun Violence Archive that we know inflates their numbers, and we know they know we know this because they tell us on the website. Um, so, so every, uh, Gun Violence Archive, for example, considers a mass shooting where there are four more people present, not 
four more people shot. And I, like that's just disingenuous research. That's that's not that's nothing that would ever pass muster in a peer-reviewed journal. But boy, it's out there, and boy, every freaking mass media article I know of cites it from CNN to MSNBC to even Fox News sometimes like gun violence archive it must be good it's an archive it's like no they they fudge their data um and it's it's agenda driven even the universities that research this stuff Duke uh Johns Hopkins their they their reports always land the way they want them to land so no there's no there's no data to back this up if you look at the raw data and the pie chart that I always share well, uh, you know, homicides are I don't know, 23,000 a year out of the uh, 60,000 gun deaths that we have and uh, 48,000 of them are suicides. I'm making numbers up because I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's like 62% are, yeah, it's, it's right there. 62% are suicides. 30% are, uh, you know, 38, 36, 38% are homicides. And of the homicides, um, 3% are mass shootings. And of all gun deaths, three tenths of a percent are mass shootings. Like, th there's no data to support uh, banning AR-15s. Uh, I think it was uh, wasn't USCC. NSSF has a has a uh, an article that suggests that 14 percent of the three tenths of a percent of the mass shootings were done by rifle. It's like that's that's an infinitesimal number. We got 24 million rifle, almost 25 million rifles in this country assault style, whatever, um, AKs and ARs, you'd think we'd have like explosive amounts of, of violence with rifles. We don't because guess what? Most of us use them appropriately and they don't fall into the wrong hands. So it's, it's all sensationalism. And again, you know, not to thump my own chest, but if you, if you watch the emotional functioning videos, you understand how the limbic system responds a certain way in the brain that overrides the logic system. Logic says, what do the data show us? Limbic says, oh my God, freak out. Somebody told me something scary. Um, and so we act out of that emotion in our policy decisions and our judgments and our belief systems and whatnot. And, and that's not, that's not the way you want to make good legislation. You don't want to make, you want to legislate out of emotion. You don't want to parent out of emotion. You don't want to make any decisions out of emotion. You want to make them out of logic. What you want to do is take the emotion try to figure out what it's telling you, then make a logical decision. So yeah, all these other professions are afraid to come into counseling uh, for the same reasons. And that's where you hear this like destigmatize mental health. And I, I'm not a big fan of using the, the word stigma um, because the brain, the brain never registers the not or the don't or the D it just re re registers the thing. So if I tell you, you know, don't think of elephants, first right. thing it pops into your head is an elephant. So if I say think of tigers, well, you're going to focus on tigers, right? So um, what we want to do is, or at least what I would invite people to do is instead of saying destigmatize, I would say, treat it normally. If you're sick, you're sick. If you're sick in the brain, you're sick in the brain. If you're sick in the mind, you're sick in the mind. If you're sick in your arm because you broke it playing racquetball, um, treat it. And also treat it as though it's overcomable because it is. Very, very rarely very exceptionally, extraordinarily rarely is a mental illness permanent. Um, people who believe mental illnesses are permanent have basically given up on treating it. That's that's my take. And, well, and I'll, I'll fight they're everybody unaware. on it. <laughs> they're unaware. Why do we know about yeah. mental health? I mean, what we see in movies and TV, and it's the same as a revolver that can explode a car if it's yeah. in a gas car. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. Use the 50 cal. It shoots through an engine block. <laughs> Okay, I just got one of those laying around that I can carry with me. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
yeah, that's that's enough to say about that, I guess, for right now. Right on. So I well, I was going to ask then. Um, I've got a couple of questions in here, but I had my own question here that I thought was better for this next one, which was no, not that one. Oh, so when we we're talking about, I was going to say normalizing mental health awareness then. Yeah, I think normalizing is fine. Here's the problem with normalizing, though. I don't want to make it like mental health. Mental illness is normal. That's 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 a huge, huge problem right now, and it's afflicting our children in a big, big way. Um, well, I'll say that again. You, it is normal, or you don't want to. It, it. I want I want it normal to be discussed. I don't want to normalize that everyone is mentally ill. That's there's okay. a, there's a, a distinction to be made there. Fostering the idea that everyone has mental illness and just from time to time. Yes. Yes. From time to time. And so there's, there's a couple angles here. Um, one is we have to define what a mental illness is. Um, we have a book. It's, it's a big book. It's called the diagnostic and statistical manual mental disorders. It's the DSM, right? We just call it the DSM. It's currently on its fifth iteration. And that's like our Bible. That's the, the thing that we go to that tells us how to diagnose things and to describe them and what they are. What it doesn't tell us is how to treat them. Um, we need the diagnoses to create codes that send off to insurance companies so they can reimburse us for care. We also need the book so that we have a common understanding and language among and between professionals. So if I tell another professional major depressive disorder, recurrent, moderate, they know what that means. Those are the two functions of that book. Now, it should be very, very hard to get diagnosed with a mental disorder because the criteria to meet are pretty challenging. However, that doesn't mean that you're not mentally disturbed or distressed or dysregulated and don't meet criteria. And that happens all the time. Um, you know, if I, I'm 44 years old, if I watch my dog get hit by a car, it doesn't matter if he's 10 and probably on his way out in the next year and a half anyway, that's going to suck. And I'm going to be rocked for a few days. I don't meet the criteria for mental disorder though. And I should not seek therapy for that. If it lasts for a long period of time, as indicated by the book, and the symptoms are such that they interfere with my daily functioning, yeah, uh, and then I've leveled up to a mental disorder and I probably need some some professional care in the form of maybe some medication or some meditation or therapy or talk therapy, whatever, journaling, articles, whatever. But normal life circumstances are not supposed to result in hospitalization. They're not supposed to result in months of treatment uh, one hour a week with your counselor. Um, and that's what's happened, unfortunately, with the popularization, and I will use that term, the popularization of mental health care, which I happen to think is probably a pretty good thing over the last, uh, certainly last two and a half years since 2020, but preceding that by a couple of years. So I'll call it five years. Um, we've destigmatized, but the pendulum has swung away from don't talk about mental illness to it's popular to have a mental illness. And, and there's some social capital in that. When you say, oh, I'm struggling with my depression, you post it on Facebook and everybody's like, oh, you poor thing. Well, guess what you just earned? A bunch of adoration and affection and praise. And you're, you're so strong and you're courageous for sharing your story. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that helps because what it says to everybody else is this is a good way to get likes and clicks. And our kids watch that. And TikTok is full of that crap. Uh, TikTok is full of children who are creating a contagion effect among other children who don't have illnesses, who realize that they get millions of views if they say they have an illness, 
and then suddenly they have an illness. So, so now and, you're not even talking like, oh, I think I have a something, but instead, I know I'll get more views if I play the role of I have whatever. Yeah, and it's and it's not even that conscious, and it's not even about views. It's about uh, so we do a lot of work in a rural school uh, school system here in Nevada, about a hundred miles away from Reno, um, and these kids aren't aren't Instagram celebrities. They're they're kids in a town of 2,500 people, but you still get the same level of attention from your peer colleagues in school if you're depressed or if you well, have personality or, or suddenly you're, you you decide you're a different uh, identity, right? Um, it's it's like standing up in the class and getting all the attention. Mm -hmm. that's, they don't right. need level of Instagram top level fame. They're just looking for the ability to be famous to their peer group. Yeah. And, and what we have to ask is why is that, why is that happening? And my, my recurring theory that is yet to be bucked by any sort of evidence, either anecdotal or empirical is they're not getting it at home where they should be getting it properly. So where do they go? They go to their friends and it used to be, oh, my parents are ignoring me. I'm going to go hang out with my friends and drink in the Canyon or whatever. Um, that's a different kind of danger and problematic, but now we've got people who are identifying differently, self-harming, ideating suicide because it gets some attention. And that's the type of pendulum swing I'm talking about. Instead of saying, no, you're not depressed. You're lonely. Go get a friend, re-enroll in softball after school. You'll be fine. We, we coddle them and we go, oh, you poor thing. Let's, let's get you the psychiatrist and get you on some, some medication. Um, ADHD is a really popular one because it's very nondescript and almost anything can be ADHD. But if you read the book, the DSM, and you read the, all the confounding variables and you read all the differential diagnoses, it should be almost impossible to diagnose somebody with ADHD in its pure form. It's, it's almost always something else. It's a trauma effect. It's a, it's a, it's a bored kid who's really smart. Um, it's bipolar disorder. It's something else. Um, all of which are treatable by the way. But when we've got my clinic being flooded with people who are they're they're significantly impacted to the point that they are their life skills are diminished so they think they need care and they come in and, and we analyze it in you know 15 minutes and go hey actually you know what you need you need you just need to apologize to your mom and go go make amends to your dad uh, because you've been kind of a turd for the last couple of years and you're 14 uh, that's probably going to be okay. And parents are like, really? And the kid's like, really? And you go, yeah, yeah, it really is that easy. Um, it shocks them. They're like, well, we thought this was much more complicated. And it's like, no, stop, get off the internet. <laughs> stop, stop pursuing dark, deep rabbit holes. So I, I do want to normalize the conversation. I don't want to popularize illness. Uh, I don't, I want, again, I'll go back to the top of the, the session, you know, when we were talking about how I want to keep people out of my agency by dispensing information that's useful. I don't, I don't want these kids and these adults coming in with, um, with symptoms that they don't believe they can overcome. That's another narrative that we have to change too. is like, I was born this way. It's like, no, you weren't. You didn't come out of the womb angry. It doesn't even make sense. You, you trained yourself that way, maybe, <laughs> but we, anytime we can train somebody, we train them differently to go a different direction. So that this is supposed to be hope inspiring. And I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm condescending anybody who's struggling. You can struggle but it may not rise to the, to the level of, you know, mental disorder per the book billable to insurance. But boy, the people living it sure think they are. Uh, they they think they're really really suffering, and and that that's real. That's really hard for us to 
you know, to differentiate when, when they come in and they're like, I have all these symptoms, click, 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 click. It's like, man, you're 12. How do you know all this? <laughs> like, I've been online a lot. Don't be online. <laughs> you won't have those symptoms. They're all in competition with each other. Um, so yeah, we do want to, we want to normalize the conversation. We want to validate people, but we want to take personal accountability for the, how, how we interact with our environments. Now that can be accomplished through basically awareness and education, right? Same way it sounds as though in the big picture, at least, and I'm an op op optimistic, I guess, but it sounds yeah. like that can be accomplished in the same way that CPR was accomplished and then eventually stop the bleed classes. Once teachers, for example, are aware and they add it to curriculum, then the next generation is just, um, I think of it as like a, a leg, you know, if you twist your leg or you break your leg or you get a cut in your leg, it's all going to be, you know, you twist your ankle, you break your leg or you get a, a cut or something. Everyone knows that those are three different things and nobody expects that kid to play softball the next day. Or if he does, they know he's going to hurt his leg more. Right. And they're right. all going to feel like, oh, he's sacrificing his leg for this. He can't do it. You know, there's going to be all that. When it's mental, we all just don't have the words to describe the elements. Right. And it's, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just that nobody has the words to describe all this stuff. Now that it's come into light, people will be able to say like, hey, I got to sit out. I don't feel good today. What do you mean? Did your leg hurt? No, my brain hurts. I'm sitting down today. Like, oh, okay. You want yeah. something for it? You want some you know, something to drink? Or you want the tomorrow off too? Or, right? I don't know what the, you know, I'm just using that as an example that once we understand that it's just like hurting our leg, right? Sometimes. Yeah cut your leg off sometimes it's going to heal right up sometimes you're going to have a limp but it's just another organ it's just another facet of us right yeah i th you make a good point there about um kind of i don't want to put words in your mouth but like training everybody to be to be aware of that right and so yeah. we can we can kind of give a pass to people the, the problem is it's not tangible it's not visible we can't we can't I, look at it and go oh, bleeding cut um, we just have to take somebody's word for it. And I, and I think that puts a lot of people on their heels, especially with regard to like the workforce, you know, are you taking a mental health day again? Was the fourth one this week? Um, it's like, and well, you yeah, you, you might be able to pay attention to that where they think they need it. And they just don't uh, yeah. realize, you know, well, and the fact that they're even bringing it up, you're like, you got your fourth mental health day this week. Maybe there's something bigger going on in your life. Maybe work shouldn't be your priority right now. And maybe as your boss, I shouldn't make work your priority right now. I care about you as a human being. Um, so there's a whole corporate conversation we could have about corporate culture needs to change and all that stuff. But I think we also need to, to pay attention to um, making, I'll back up a second. When I was, when I was trained to, uh, to be a counselor, I was, I was told I had a very, very good supervisor. Her name is Gail. And Gail said, uh, our job as therapists is not to make people better. It's not to make change. It's to create an environment where change is possible. So it's warm, it's welcoming, it's non-judgmental. And then if they choose to change, they can do so. But we're not responsible for the change. And I think that bosses would do well with that. I think teachers, administrators, certainly parents, they need to create an environment where honest, transparent conversation can be had without fear of reprisal. A lot of gun owners don't want to come into care because they're because of fear of reprisal. They think they're going to have their property taken away or, or their rights or they're going to they're going to get, uh, you know, imprisoned in a hospital against their will. Um, first of all, that that's really, really, really extraordinarily fleetingly rare um, of the millions and millions and millions of visits across the, the country every year. Uh, only a handful end up in 
institutionalization against their will. And and you don't know any of those people. <laughs> like very, very rarely does that happen. Uh, if you happen to know somebody who is placed on a 72 hour involuntary psychiatric hold, you probably within yourself go, yep, they deserved it. And, uh, and that's, that's the first line that we go to anyway, is higher level of care. We don't go to taking your stuff. Like that's, it's not appropriate. Uh, and there's ethical prohibitions of that too, but, but I get the I get the hesitation. So how do we, how do we fix that? You, you, you mentioned earlier something along the lines of like, I don't think it was intentional. And I agree with you. I don't think it was intentional, but it was definitely done by our people. Because we had for years and years and years, we had in our heads that what we did was something special and magical and nobody else could possibly understand how we do it. And I think it was largely because we didn't have the intentionality. You say our why we did it. The mental mental health, psychotherapy. Yeah. Mental health people. Um, and so we hid in the shadows. And what that created was a was a marketplace void uh, where the large corporate insta therapy entities, as I call them now, you know, talk space, good therapy, better help. They're we gotta do a whole show about how I hate that model. But nonetheless, it exists. Why does it exist? Therapy or something? Yeah, yeah. You go go online, you do 30 minutes at a time, and they promise yeah, it's like a concierge thing. You pay a monthly fee and you get certain levels of access based on you know gold, silver, platinum, or whatever. Um, it's what Michael Phelps advertises, and um it's just it's not good care. I won't say it's unethical. Because bad therapy is not illegal. It's just not, it's not effective. And I don't care how many testimonies they trot out there. The baseline comparison is against something that wasn't good in the first place, which was, which was the people doing it in the shadows. And so we created this void, this vacuum. And when pandemic hit, it was a, it was a crazy opportunity for people to seize on to make a killing out of we're we're facing tech startups, but of a of a healthcare variety now, and it's super dangerous. That the rubber band is going to snap back after all these millions of people who are in those those care services realize they're just not getting any better, and they've been doing it for twelve or fourteen months. Uh, and then they'll all come. Hopefully, they will come back to us. I don't know that they will because they may distrust the entire profession at that point. Kind of like we all distrust public health right now because public health messaging has been awful for two and a half years. Um, but that's what happened. And so I can go out there and say, Hey, I'm, I'm a cool dude. I've got these credentials and, um, I've been on a bunch of podcasts or whatever in the gun community. Um, you can trust me and maybe some people will listen, but I don't know that anybody's really interested in augmenting their, um, their utility belt, so to speak with more knowledge about more things. You already mentioned CPR and, you know, all that stuff. Like, do we need mental health first aid for everyone also? It's like, yeah, we, we really do. And it's not going to hurt anybody, but who's got the time? Who's got the bandwidth? Especially now when we're already stressed out, everybody's burned out and nobody even wants to work anymore. I, I'm like that some days. So where's our audience is the question. And how do we bring people to the table to say, look, you too can help another fellow human being by learning the bare minimum. And for me, the bare minimum is emotional functioning. I keep going back to that and I'll, I'll beat that drum forever until something else changes my mind, which, you know, I've changed my mind. Like I'm not going to die on that hill, but for right now it's working really well. If you learn emotional functioning super well, um, please don't just hoard the information, share it with people, start labeling things accurately. Like, well, you seem sad right now, not upset. Upset is generic and vague and subjective. 
Oh, sad is very precise. So if you say, wow, you're sad right now, people usually, it drains the limbic system. They, they come forward and go, yeah, yeah, thank you. You're right. Man, I feel better all of a sudden because you validated my sadness. Um, that's all it takes. But you can't do that if you don't know it. And like you said earlier, um, we don't have this in any curriculum. Nobody's teaching this. We've got social emotional learning kind of loosely doing it. But I don't know, 70 or 80% of that's pretty trashy too. Um so I, you know, that's how you do it. All the other stuff is, I think it's just packaged up so people can make money off of it. They've tried out to K-12 curriculums. They're like, no, well, first day and teach all the teachers. Teachers are like, I'm teaching enough as it is. My slate's full with reading, writing, arithmetic. I don't need anything else. Um, but yet they can't avoid it because all the kids are getting sicker. And so who, who does is it fall to? Is there something like a first aid course? for mental health awareness is there, there is literally a, a thing called mental health first aid yeah um and it is it, i mean it's quite useful but it's like anything if you don't practice it you're gonna you're gonna get rusty and it's cool for a week and then you forget it and well um, i figure it's like I, I was an emt i never did anything mm -hmm. i just went to school and i got nationally registered and then i talked to too many emts and did too many ride-alongs and i was like okay i'm gonna not to be an emt so uh i never did it, but I did do a lot of ride-alongs and stuff. And um, what was I going to say? I think it's. Uh, I was going to say, is it something that um, you got to practice your splints and tourniquets? You know, like well, I was going to say, it's like having a, I never seen a baby get born. I never had to do mm -hmm. nothing like that. But I read about it a couple of times. So if it had, if I had to, you know, I yeah, I would. If there was nobody else there, you know, I would attempt it. But yeah, you know, I think I also that's know totally all the bad things. So I was just wondering if there's something like that, just so you know that it's there. Yeah, like, that, I think that's totally appropriate analogy. And that's that's kind of what we're trying to do with WTTA with our training courses is, you know, if if um, if I get hired and this, and this happens pretty frequently, somebody hires me to go train their staff on something or I go teach a bunch of attorneys at a conference um, or I, I taught I taught cops for you know four years or so in the academy. Would be cops, I guess, that recruits. Um, is that like a course they have, or is that just like a yeah. lecture they get? Yeah, it's uh, so in the in the police academy. There's uh, you know uh, twenty twenty two weeks. Uh, one of those weeks is forty full hours of CIT crisis intervention training. So I, I taught the intro, the mental health overview, three hours, and then I did scenarios and evaluations at the end to make sure they were you know implementing what they learned. So it's it's like you know it's in there. If you don't teach it, it's not in there. And same thing with uh, with any of the other uh, groups that I, I present to. Um, it's just a nice exposure. Uh, do it, I do it frequently at schools for parents. Uh, parents come in and we talk about like social media stuff and how to how to help your kids navigate that world and how to help yourself navigate that world. We talk about emotional functioning, of course. Um, I do it at my church. Uh, actually, this this coming Sunday, I'm covering for my pastors because uh, uh, they're a married husband and wife couple. They're out of town and. Uh, he, so he's turned the, the pulpit over to me. So I'm going to, two weeks ago, I taught emotional functioning and its core as a, as a pathway to knowing God better, because you, you can't be intimate with anyone, let alone, you know, the divine, if you're not vulnerable and vulnerability is done through practicing, letting go. And the best way to learn to let go is to let your emotions flow fully in the moment that you feel them and then move on to the next moment. And if you practice that enough, you, you can find yourself being vulnerable and then growing intimate with people. So that was one sermon. This sermon's going to be about something else that's rolling around in my head. I haven't crystallized it yet, but but that's one way. Like it's it's a different audience, right? And so hybridizing psychology and spirituality in that format introduces that to the audience that both can coexist. 
uh, one is not strange or weird or of the occult. And through that, they know that they can go get help if they need it, or at least just journal differently or reflect on life in a, in a different way. And that's what I'm trying to do with firearms community is say, Hey guys, this isn't, this is not something to be scared of. Um, look at me, I'm doing it. Right. And they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess it's not that, it's not that spooky. Um, and then curiosity grows and then more emails come in and then I, you know, fire off some resources and here, pick up this book. And, um, that's a, probably a good segue into a guy I didn't mention earlier. I said, you know, my good friend and mentor who brought me the concept of intentionality of knowing why you do what you do. His name's Christian Conti and uh, C-O-N-T-E is how you spell the last name. His book, Walking Through Anger, his, his latest book is on yield theory. It's this way of dealing with people where you meet them where they are. And it's an excellent book for anyone to read. It's very, very digestible, very applicable to anything and it'll improve your communication. So pick up Walking Through Anger by Christian Conti. That's one of the things that I, I regularly reference and I throw out to people all the time. If you just kind of are like, your curiosity's peaked, uh, you're like, all right, cool, I'll check out Jake's Emotional Function videos. What else can I read? Read Walking Through Anger by Christian Conti. It's amazing. And then I got a zillion other books I can throw at you, if, depending on your interests, too. Well, that's actually one of the things that I've been trying to do is ask everybody for a book that uh, they'd recommend. So that's that is uh probably right at the top of my list for every person well uh, i just dropped the link to his website nice. but i'll drop a link to the amazon so i can get a cut of it if he's on amazon uh in the description whenever uh whenever we're finished here so um before we go to go ahead. Oh, let me let me grab this this thing here um smeggy 42 uh, everyone out there has quote anxiety. I think it takes away from people who are actually struggling, man. I could not, it's like louder for the people in the back, dude, not at all kidding. Uh, trauma is the other buzzword that everybody, everybody's got trauma. No, you, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. We have to stop pathologizing normal responses to life. Um, you got fired from your job. That sucks. You will push through it. It is not traumatizing. That's not trauma. Um, trauma is very, has a very high bar to meet. It's very unique. And, um, and that's not it. So anxiety, depression, like people are like, I'm so depressed right now. It's, uh, and, and, and I think that waters down that people are actually struggling for sure. PTSD. God, there was that article by that idiot. I, I try to refrain from judgmental language, but there, this idiot who shot the AR for the first time and he wrote a New York Times article like oh, in 2018 or 2017. Yeah. yeah, he's like, I got a mild case of PTSD from it. It's like, MFR, don't you ever. <laughs> I was so angry about that and it well, had almost nothing up, to do with right? the gun. <laughs> it's so harmful to the people that actually are dealing with stuff. Like, yeah, man. It, it just, just co-ops it. Yeah, it, it hijacks the the severity of it and, and it and it diminishes the impact the gravity of of what that illness actually is like and and a lot of us now are starting to turn our our heads around the idea that's pt post-traumatic stress is not a disorder it's actually an injury to the brain and we've got lots of research substantiating that uh one of the gals we interviewed um shauna springer on the podcast uh she she talks about the stellate ganglion block and you can hear all about it. i'm not going to talk about it here but uh listen to this shauna springer interview if you're interested in ptsd and not p PTSD, but as an eye, PTSI injury. It's very, very fascinating stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, that, that makes me really angry. And something else that I wanted to say was like, 
the weaponizing of mental illness to, I'm not saying we can't joke. Please, please don't understand me. I love humor. I love dark humor. I can laugh. But you have to know what you're laughing about. And when we say this weather is so bipolar, it's like, you you know, there's people who actually have bipolar disorder. And they're actually really suffering, right? It's really unfair to like throw that away, uh, talking about how the weather was suddenly sunny when it was just snowing. Um, or, yeah, oh, man, the that baseball team is being so schizophrenic right now. It's like, okay. First of all, that's not even an accurate analogy. <laughs> uh, they're not they're not having psychotic episodes, so they're not schizophrenic. What you mean is they're inconsistent. So we need to be precise in our language. We need to stop weaponizing the stuff because it does it does diminish what's actually happening. And where's I'll the, say, oh, go ahead. I was just say, where's the line between like weaponizing it and inclusivity or whatever? Like you know, being you know what I mean, like the negative or the uh, uh, oblivious. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you want to politely yeah. correct those people. I don't want to, uh, you know, I wouldn't come down on like a ton of bricks on somebody who said that. I'd just be like, hey, man, like, you know, you're using that word improperly. And then hopefully that invites a conversation. I'm not just condescending them sanctimoniously being like, I'm so much better than you because I know what schizophrenia is in the book and you don't. Like, I, I want to, I want them to go, what do you mean? And then I say, well, you know, schizophrenia is actually defined by the following criteria and what you mean is the baseball team's inconsistent. They're like, ha ha ha. It's just being funny. It's like, nah, it's not really that funny. It's because it's, it's kind of lame. Um, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, I know this happens, but it's, it's also offensive when people say, uh, you're such a cancer to the organization. Like, ah, eh, I don't know, man. Like there's people out there struggling with cancer. Maybe we could find a different way to express that. That's not so glib. Um, so you know, it's it's about language precision. I don't want to stand here and pretend like I'm some softy who's all offended all the time. It's I want to I want to express myself accurately so that I'm understood, and not in a cavalier, cast off kind of way that may may offend somebody sitting right next to me who's not going to speak up. And now I've I've lost rapport with that person. That's right. that's the real danger, right? Well, um, but, what I was talking about with intent too. You can't. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then, you know what I mean? And try, your intent should be to not uh, get in the way of stuff. You should you try to know your audience. Yeah. Uh, but, but the final note I was going to put on anxiety is um, we don't want anxiety to go away. We don't want depression to go away. We don't want anger to go away. We, we don't want any of this stuff to go away. We just want to acknowledge it for what it is. And then in some cases it's useful. It's okay to be depressed um, for a period of time because usually that acts as a motivator to avoid the similar situation in the future that, that broke your heart or whatever. And anxiety can be quite the motivator to, you know, study hard for the test or watch more game film to be a better uh, athlete or whatever. We don't want to eliminate that stuff. We just want to be mindfully using it when it enters into your life to such a degree that it's crippling and you can't function. Uh, you've, you've lost lots of interest or ability, uh, that's, that's problematic. That's clinical diagnosable anxiety. So it's okay to say I have anxiety right now. Like I've, I've got a lot of anxiety before this test. It's like, yeah, I would too. It's a big test, right? Like we can validate that without completely watering it down and saying, I've got anxiety because I'm, I'm going to drive into rush hour today. It's like, uh, maybe, maybe take side streets then. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that that's an appropriate <laughs> description of, of anxiety. Like, Maybe you just need to get more competent too. And that's, that's one way to battle things like anxiety is anxiety is chiefly rooted in fear. Fear of what? I don't know. Disappointment, um, being, uh, 
being surprised, uh, whatever it is. And the, and the best way to avoid that kind of thing is to align your expectations with reality. If reality is rush hour starts at 4.30 and it used to start at 5.15, you got to meet reality where it is and stop saying I have anxiety because rush hour is starting early. You know, align your expectations with reality. Say, well, I, I'm going to go drive into traffic now and uh, it's going to be a little rougher than I uh, would like. That's a more accurate description. That's that's more more expressive. It's it's not um, it's not judgmental. It doesn't put you in the victim's role either. Like ah, it's happening to me. Uh, I have this anxiety that I can't control. It's not it's not psychological chickenpox. It doesn't just you know descend from nowhere. We have control over our, our thoughts. We have control over where we direct our attention. And if we know that and we practice that, then we're a lot less likely to succumb to the environmental stimuli that push us into one way or another. We can go, oh, I recognize that I'm really getting angry right now because people around me are driving like idiots. Okay, it is rush hour. People are trying to get home. Um, align my expectations with reality. I don't have to be angry. I can just, you know, give a little more space and uh, continue on. And then I'm, then I'm not victim to my circumstances. I'm in charge of my own decision-making, my, uh, my own mentality. Yeah, pull over and get a coffee or something and wait till yeah. you can drive home, you know, at your leisure, right? And then be yelled at by my wife for being late. <laughs> well, not everybody can do that. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned before I wanted to throw it out there is um, when you're talking about, I, I don't know if it, I guess I use the word normalization. I didn't want to get into that, but, you know, just the idea of bringing it to awareness. Um, I've been listening to a lot of uh, podcasts that are interviews with various veterans coming out of different roles of the global war on terror. And, mm -hmm tip of the spear level these guys get a lot of attention a lot of um resources put at them and they'll they kind of just casually talk about this stuff because they're getting resources that the rest of the military isn't getting and i mean they know that but at the same time they don't really spend a lot of time on it but i've noticed that they've you know they'll take uh readings basically like they'll they'll take as they get into the roles of special operations or something especially nowadays they'll give them diagnostics tests basically to see mm. what their mental state is. And then after a few years of breaching doors and falling off of stuff and, you know, being bounced around, even with a helmet on, you know, they keep doing these diagnostic tests and then it's the equivalent of an oil chest, you know, sticking the dipstick in there. And as soon as they get results back that are physically outside a parameter, then you're out of here. And, you know, mm. back in the day it was, oh, no, I'm feeling fine, doc, because they didn't want to yeah. not be doing their thing. And, you know, because guys got out and turned around and said, here's what we used to do. Let's stop the guy. You know, let's not let these new guys do this. And plus, the new guys just don't want to come out worn out. Um, I think that part of it, I was just going to bring that part out. If you I'm sure you've heard of it or you know, aware of it. But I'm thinking, like, just bring in that kind of like, you know, we like everything military surplus and at least the gun community. You know, we like military ammo surplus. We like rifle surplus. We like clothes surplus we like their tactics we like watching them in movies and stuff and now that we and plus if it's special operations then it has to be better right oh so yeah if these guys are going in and getting a mental uh diagnostic done so that they can tell what they are now versus in the future is there something there like hey you know when you're 18 do this mental exercise you know trying to stuff figure stuff out be able to tell your brothers your buddies your brothers and sisters you know be able to monitor their stuff same way you would in a team, same way you would in a small unit. And, and then the same way, like when you get out, like, you know, you know that at some point you've got 
a physical issue. Like you were saying, TBI or um, um, post-traumatic stress, nobody says D anymore. They don't need the D no more. That's yeah. lots of reasons. But that's because it's gotten around. People started to figure out, you know, to start using that nomenclature, that, that terminology. Anyway, I was just going to put that out there. I, I, no, I think that's brilliant. I'm going to I'm going to steal that. Actually, I uh, um I'd never considered that idea before. And you think back, like how much have we taken from military research to uh, space research? You know, Velcro is the the low hanging fruit. Um, why? Sure, you why guys have to do, right? with all the stuff that the stress tests they did on the astronauts and stuff. They must have been using all that for medical field. Uh. I don't know. Uh, I assume so. I don't know how, what the direct lineage is of stuff like that, but, um, I honestly didn't know they were doing the, the pre and post, you know, dipstick tests like you're mentioning. That's, that's pretty cool stuff. I, I analogize it to a, a concussion protocol in sports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I was going to say, I don't know nothing about sports, yeah. but I think they got it. Special operations yep. got it from sports because those guys Probably. are worth a million bucks. They want, they're, yeah. they're not saying, Hey, hey what's well, worried about the guys. They're worried about their million dollars investments. And yep. how many times they're getting knocked over, right? Yeah, and and there's and there's some uh, some optics there too, right? Like, oh, we care about the players, and then there, you know, the NFL uh, players association is like, no, you don't. Like, why are you expanding the season if you care so much about us? Um, but the 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 less cynical side of that, um, directly applicable to the gun community, is and, and this is where I get to start calling out, you know, major corporations who have yet to put our screenings in our screenings flyers in their boxes in their packaging is, is to say, why? Like, I don't understand it. I don't understand why every manufacturer in America doesn't have WTTA.org slash love. Take free and anonymous mental health screening today on every single box of every single piece of ammunition and firearm accessory that they send out because it's legally defensible. It, it, first of all, it's, it's a big hit in the community. Every single manufacturer that's done it from arms Corps, who is our first big onboard sponsor to ruger to um arms high Corps point versa arms car wrote the url on the box right yes they did yeah they were the first to do that um and and yet several who i will not mention have balked and all i can figure is that the the culture is such that they they're just somehow afraid irrationally this is again emotion driving decision making and civil logic uh, they're afraid that they, whoever they is, the gun grabbers, are going to you know, be like, oh, you're acknowledging that mental illness is a problem. Therefore, we're going to sue you harder. It's like, they're going to sue you anyway. Like, at least when you get into court, you can be like, hey, look, man, we printed this on our box. We're trying. The the alcohol community did that with, uh, with the drunk driving campaign. .gov did not force the alcohol industry into uh, doing drink responsibly. The alcohol industry did that on its own. So gun community needs to figure out real, real, real fast that if it doesn't want .gov to tell it to do these things, it needs to do them themselves. And I don't know why, why the big boys aren't, aren't doing it. They should be. And there, there's no losing here other than in their own minds, because every company we've gone to has had overwhelming, great feedback, overwhelming, great feedback. Nobody has said, oh, I think this is a bad idea. Um, nobody's lost revenue over it. You know what I mean? 
Um, and Ruger just doubled down on their commitment to us. That was that was awesome. We've got a press release coming out, so I guess I'll just tease it now. They they started with 25k last September, and just a month ago they bumped it to another 25k to 50. Like that's and they're and they're going to start doing it all their packaging starting before 2023 was their commitment. So it's like okay, if Ruger and Arms Corps can do it, probably everybody else can do it, and. And that's how we we really start to normalize the conversation. You want to really talk about how we move the needle on discussion of these issues. I, I, you can't go to a party anymore. I know it's been like 30 years in the making, but you can't go to a party anymore and have somebody, have nobody at the party ask, are you okay to drive? Like that doesn't, that's not a thing anymore. If you're no, in right. one of those parties, like <laughs> now maybe there's not as much action taken of like no i'm definitely going to wrestle your keys away from you dude like that that's that happens too by the way um and i was in college 25 years ago um so so i guess actually it's more like 40 or 45 years this this uh drunk driving campaign has been going on but that was going on back then it was like hey you sure to drive yeah i'm fine (laughs) i can lie to you but at least the conversation is happening if we get this across the board in all packaging everywhere all accessories all firearms all ammunition all retail stores, all ranges. There's nowhere to hide now when you're out on the range with your buddies and, and, and one of them is just like off, right? Not talking like he usually talks eyes downcast, um, grumbling about something that normally he doesn't grumble about. You go, Hey, you're all right. And that's not the way to ask the question, but maybe two years ago, the question doesn't even get asked. The way you ask the question, by the way, is dude, you look, like you're kind of out of it today and I'm a little concerned is something going on in your life that I need to help you with. Like, that's the way you ask the question. Very direct, very honest. And if you have rapport with the person, they'll be like, yeah, it's just, you know, wife's been under the weather. I've had to take care of the kids and I've got a screaming sick baby with an ear infection. And like, all right, cool. That, that adds up. That makes sense. You're, you're probably not suicidal. Right. But if he goes, no, no, it's nothing, man. Uh, You better ask another question. That's the, that's where we need to get with this. Um, And those are your trusted buddies. Uh, when you're at the workspace, I don't care if you own guns or not at this point, you're at the workplace and um, and somebody's doing the same thing with the same behaviors and you're sitting around the the water cooler or the, the break room and, you know, fighting the snack machine to dispense your Cheetos or whatever. Uh, ask the question like, hey, man, you look a little off. Just simply saying that communicates a message of I'm here for you. I may not have the answers, but I notice. And then the recipient of that goes. Thanks. And maybe that's all it needs because you don't know that the dude wasn't going to go home and eat a bullet that night. And maybe he won't. And we don't, we don't have empirical data to substantiate that that works. But are we really going to roll the dice on not doing it? So let's, let's do that. And then, and then maybe we turn around 15 years from now and we see suicides have decreased and happiness has increased and, you know, everybody's healthier and better and we all just high five and and then walk the talk america works itself out of a job too that would be ideal well when you talk about talking yourself or or, you know doing things efforting to alleviate the need for your occupation and that's i think part of the whole thing too is when as gun owners as the gun community comes up with solutions to these issues that you know have well there's always been guns right? Ever since this country's been around, at least, there's always been guns. Mm-hmm. And there's always been small enough guns that someone could hurt themselves or somebody else with. These issues are relatively new. So 
I think yeah. that as we as gun owners solve these relatively recent modern issues that have come up with you know around our our possession of property and the and the and the laws and the media attention and all that kind of stuff as we solve that we'll be leading the way for other segments of society that don't have a fundamental you know constitutionally protected element to them you know driving a car or i don't know yeah. anything and uh, yeah. like maybe marijuana is a good thing uh, marijuana and maybe the war on drugs in general they i don't i don't know how marijuana got to where it is because there was no nothing like the second amendment to unite uh pot smokers but you know the same way that i'm assuming as a pot smoker you could you know because it's an illegal thing and all that and because it's looked down in society and all that you might have uh concerns going to seek out help Right. Because, you know, as that I don't know how to say it, but yeah. as those get pulled back and there's less perceived issue and you can go seek out help for other things, then, you know, there's less tension, there's less there's more relief and less stress in the world. Well, yeah, you're right. I guess what All I'm saying is I think that gun owners have this unified fundamental thing that kind of keeps us together. And as we learn to deal with the suicide which is a big element of something that's being we're being persecuted because of as we learn to deal with that we'll also be teaching the country how to work together to treat period right just to yep. be to be to be good to each other that that's exactly it. you couldn't you couldn't have stated it any better that's where it starts um I, I read a great article recently, sort of depressing, but it, but it, it was great. It was talking about mass shootings, and one of the authors, these are two researchers, uh, I think they're both psychiatrists, actually, um, who one of them said, mass violence is suicide turned outward. And I was like, that is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. You're so depraved internally, and you're so full of shame and rage that you don't even have the ability to take your own life unless you take others with you. It's, I mean, this is deep on such a metaphorical archetypal level. It, this would be an entire podcast unto itself, but it was so brilliant. And I thought, man, you know what? We will stop mass shootings if we focus on healing people. And I don't mean individual psychotherapy. I mean, cultural change within families, which is a generation away admittedly, if we can, if we can do some major adjustments right now, but, um, it's, it's the way to get to gun violence. People are gun violence, gun violence, gun violence. And it's like, well, is, is, is suicide violence. I used to, I used to want to parse that out and say, no, not really. Violence is violence perpetrated upon other people. And I could, I could cite definitions and all sorts of articles to substantiate that. But I'm like, no, no, suicide's really a violent act upon self. So I, I'm, I'm actually increasingly more comfortable lumping suicides into gun violence. But that's, that's an academic discussion. What the people who are trying to take our rights away are doing is lumping it in intentionally to augment the numbers. That's not okay. That's an intellectually dishonest argument. So for all intent and purpose, suicide should be separated, but it is a violent act. And if you want to talk about gun violence, where do you go? Suicides. They're the biggest number. There is no, there is no getting away from that. I can, you, know, you back yourself into a corner if you're trying to play word games. So yes, we will, we will affect more things and more people by focusing on 
just being mentally well. If you're mentally well, if you're healthy, you're, you have a good diet, you surround yourself with positive people, you're engaged in activities that you enjoy, you're fulfilling yourself with a career that you you like, you're bettering humanity, you're uh, tending to your friends and your family and you're raising kids or not raising kids, you're raising crops. It doesn't matter if you're mentally well, you're not going to do violent things against yourself or others. You're not going to start cutting your arms. You're not going to dive into a pill bottle. You're not going to drink excessively for no reason. Um, you'll, you'll just be well. And you, you, there's no reason to antagonize others or speak in snark or condescension, you know, uh, fire pot shots at people online. Uh, your kids aren't going to be bullying other kids on the playground. We'll all get better so if we use these these tactics and techniques. I see you highlighted uh, Play Nice's question there. You want to, You want to talk about that? Oh, I've got a bunch here that I've, I'm trying to, uh, I'm going to jump up. I'm going to do them a little bit in different orders because Ozzy asked this one a long time ago. And um, I don't remember what it was in regards to. He says, do you think that the government media is perpetuating the decision and is that unhealthy? Do we know what decision, I wonder? Nah, it was a while ago. So I apologize to Ozzy. Uh, uh, yes, I think they are perpetuating whatever it is, because <laughs> .gov and media are in cahoots. So whatever you're asking, I agree. <laughs> I, well, maybe I'm going to ask you. I, I've been, I, just in case you know, or maybe it was something I was watching that you were on. I was watching something recently in the last couple of weeks, and they talked about a comparison to like the movie Top Gun, the new Top Gun movie, and how much it's mm -hmm. going to cost to, uh, what do you call it, uh, promote that, you know, how much it's going to cost to have primetime airwaves and the production of you know, high quality commercials. And they compared that to the amount of airtime given to the mass murderers. And then oh. the concept was, you know, are, is the media creating this or not? And how did they justify the amount of time, effort and cost and the high production value of the efforts they put out there and when they put it out there and the saturation we all know about. But I was wow. like, we talked about how much it costs and what they've, what they've, what they've what, what would you say like what they've sacrificed because they would have made a lot of money in that prime time time slots and plus the, all the time they spent on production and i can't remember what yeah. i was watching but somebody referenced that Boy, um, um yeah i think it's i think it's manifold but the two that jump out at me are um yes there's an intent um i think there are some sinister forces that want to take away our rights for various reasons uh, that's fine. Uh, we can, we can discuss that, but I also think there's a bit of, if not a large bit of, I don't, I don't know if, if I would say it's, um, innocence or complacency or lethargy, but there's, the people promoting that stuff on the ground level, let's say they're not the, you know, the, the, the ones behind the, the curtains pulling the levers, you know, the, the execs who have an agenda for whatever reason. Um, the, the anchors, the producers, the script writers who are just being told to do what they do. They may believe it. They may want to do it. Um, but I think a lot of them are just trying to protect their jobs and they're just in the industry. I, I have a journalism degree. That's, that's my undergrad is in journalism and journalism, not what it, what it was when I was learning it in 1998. Um, it's sad. Uh, there's just very little quality journalism left. And if, if whatever is left is hard to find because it lives in, um, in Substack subscriptions, 
and there's some really good stuff on Substack. But largely, the the media you see on the TV and then the the mainstream stuff is just it's um, I don't want to say propaganda, but that's a pretty good word because there's there's money behind it and it's done for revenue generation. So this is what I mean about the innocence or the complacency. They know that if they run a story about mass shooters, they're going to get clicks and eyeballs, and that drives advertising dollars, and advertising dollars make the machine go. If they run a story about suicides, it's it's like breaking wind in, in church. Uh, nobody nobody cares. If they run a story about a, a dog that was saved from the you know speeding car, it's, it's fun, but nobody's paying for that. So, so the old adage of if it bleeds, it leads, it has a lot of credibility. The yellow journalism has returned. The yellow journalism from the, the early 1900s has returned. You got screamy headlines and people people pay attention to that. It triggers the limbic system. It triggers excitement and fear. And those things are, are geared to make you want to buy things. And advertisers love it when you buy their things. So whether it's the new iPhone, which is exciting, or the uh, competition with your neighbor for the next riding lawnmower, which is fear and excitement, which we call jealousy, um, then you're going to be, you're going to be paying attention. So the more eyeballs they can capture, the better. The agenda behind gun grabbing may be behind that probably is. Uh, there's certain people who just want to usher in a statist society and a lot of them are in media. Um, okay. But, but the, the willing, or I guess the use useful idiots, the, the willing compliant people who are on the front lines promoting it, who are actually delivering the message, I think are just by and large lazy. They're, they're there for their jobs that I don't think they, you know, they don't see it as they don't see it as it's not a controversy to them now, now, and, and largely they're insulated. So it doesn't affect them. They're not the single mom from Compton who really needs the, the semi-automatic pistol to carry in her purse to protect her kids. Or at um, least has an actual reason to make that decision. Like, has yeah, a, yeah, 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 exactly. So I was going to say that I went to, um, I've been to a lot of pro 2A rallies, right? I like to go to them. They're interesting. And I've been to a couple of anti-rallies, anti-gun rallies. And the big one I went mm -hmm. to in Phoenix once was 18,000 people, they say. And it was many, many, many times larger than any 2A rally I've been to. So yeah. it was definitely a lot of people. And uh, what I got from just experiencing that on a Saturday one day was they were all there to hate Trump and guns was the reason. But they could care less about guns, I expect. They were there because yeah. they hated Republicans and they hated the, you know, the other side, whatever the other side was for them. And uh, so for me, that in, that's one of the things that's enforced my opinion and my optimism that people like DC Project, people like yourselves and Mike um, and other efforts that are out there to create awareness, true awareness will take the firearms off the table and let those people who truly just want to hate Trump or whoever fill in the blank you know, the other side, do it with some other item. You know, they got plenty of other yeah. things they can complain about and use as weapons once we take guns off of there because they're educated to know that they're friends or whatever, you know, lots of different strategies. Yeah. But once we take it off the table, then it's again, it's a win. And then they all have to stand around going, oh, wait a minute, the NFA was a big deal and now it's gone. I guess we can right. live in harmony with belt fed full autos and that's not a big deal. Right, right. No, that's a good point. Great point. So, DJ put in here, so I'm going to start wrapping up. I just hit these yeah. questions from others. Rapid fire. So with the work you've already done, suiting you well to leadership, when will you 
enter an elected office, is he saying, I guess? Well, it sounds like you already were on that board. I mean, that's not technically, I guess, what he's talking about. Right, yeah. <laughs> Did you just assume I'm not leading? Uh, <laughs> I had a, a dalliance with uh, running for local, um, our, our state assembly here in Nevada in 2019. And I got, for the listening audience, you can't see how close my, my hand is to my nose, but I got this close to everything. And I pulled the plug and I refunded all the money that I, that I'd, uh, yeah, gathered from the people. And, uh, it cost me a fortune, uh, wiped out our savings account and it was the best decision I've ever made. I'm not going to be running for office probably ever again. I can't, I can't say that with for certainty because who knows what future brings, but it, I realized how uh, how much more difference I can make not being in the halls of Carson City, um, especially in 2020. And thank God, like I, what a bullet I dodged there with with COVID and um, and, and the particular makeup of our legislature is uh, it was like, I don't know, 75 percent Dem. And I was running as an R and I'm not I'm not an R anymore. I, I unregistered. I, I don't I don't do partisan politics anymore. I'm an independent or here we call it a nonpartisan. But um, I got really, really, really like disgusted, like viscerally sick with my own party. And I couldn't even support what they were doing. There's there's good individuals in there, um, but a lot of them even were super spineless. And so I, I pulled the plug and it was the best decision I made because it made it, it cleared the path for not only for walk the talk America, but for me to help augment Zephyr wellness and um, do lots and lots of things in the community. I found, I I formed a charter school. Like I I helped, I wasn't, I didn't do it by myself, but um, I chaired a board for a a charter school that opened that my kids now go to, you know, school choice. Like that was, that was a huge thing. Um, And I never would have been able to do that if I were in elected office. And there was, there was some some friction in my particular race uh, internally in the party. It was it was stupid middle school drama, um, but there's no doubt in my mind that I would have absolutely crushed anybody that I went up against. Uh, no no question, uh, either party. It would it would not have been close because <laughs> I don't I don't lose things like that. But um, I I just um, I wasn't going to be effective uh, when you're when you're in a minority party. Um, in that particular situation, nothing would have been done. So I was, I'm way more effective in the community now. I really appreciate that thought. Uh, It's, that's not a compliment that I, I want to like gloss over or take lightly. That's, I really appreciate you saying that, um, means a lot. And, um, leadership is not something that I've come lightly into because I wasn't kidding when I said I was bullied as a child for like 12 years. Um, it was more like nine, but it, the residue continued into college and I was a pretty shallow, empty person who was well liked by everyone, but that turned me into a sort of narcissist. And then I became really dramatic and, <laughs> uh, after college and like, I just didn't know who I was. So, uh, I've always resisted that call as much as I wanted it. My ego is wanted the titles and the fame and the glory. Like now I'm, I'm way, I don't want it at all. And I just find myself stumbling into things. So, it means a lot that somebody else would recognize that. So thank you for saying that. I'm not doing elected office though. I'll take appointments. Somebody wants to appoint me to something. I'm just not running. Screw campaigns. Well, and I'm, I'm going to, thanks for that. And then I'll ask, I'll add, um, I'm going back to veterans again. I keep watching these, these podcasts and the, the 
way that they've just undertaken, I'm going to say the leadership of uh, helping each other come out and create pipelines to uh, help each other, you know, as they come out of their uh, terms, like whatever their enlistments were, uh, the different branches. And I'm sure I'm seeing, obviously, you know, the extremes because I'm seeing the people that are so motivated that they're also sharing everything in podcasts and stuff and in that. But what I am seeing is a lot of people that, are competent and they're coming out of a situation where they came from countries where they saw the worst case scenarios of like, you know, people that I think one of the times they said uh, they do civil war as a national sport. Like they're just constantly <laughs> fighting with each yeah. other. So they've seen that and they've dealt with, I mean, literally some of them have dealt with, you know, sitting down with people who hate each other. And we've got that, we've got military intelligence at a level that we never had. I don't think since world war two, and we saw the result of military intelligence after World War II was a massive result. So we're going to see a massive, like, uh, I can't even imagine the, what we're going to see when the military intelligence group of people come out and, and turn their attentions on, well, right now they're all making money. But as soon as they yeah. quit making money and start paying attention to politics. But then I was also going to say that, you know, what we're seeing in, in these podcasts and what gets most of the attention is always the tip of the spear. But what gets overlooked is that to get 12 people to do something in a specific place on the other side of the planet or to get a drone to fly around on the other side of the planet requires a massive infrastructure, massive, massive, massive infrastructures that nobody pays attention to unless it's like one of those shows about the aircraft carriers or something. But all the boring facilitation, all the behind the scenes those people got to see the bureaucracy. And if they're anything like me, I don't know if you were in any kind of bureaucracy at all, but you know, you, you taste that and you're like, no, there's a reason. I don't, I don't like it because I don't hate government. I don't like bureaucracy and I don't like the scoundrels that hide in bureaucracy. And I get frustrated by what I'm seeing is because I can tell what's happening because I've, I've been around it. So I think that we are seeing people that have experienced the same thing and have got the foul taste. But if you got not not a lot to lose, like they didn't come back to a boom like World War II, they're coming back to famine. So they've got reason to get in there and be in the game. And they mm-hmm. have more incentive, right? So I'm thinking we've got the potential to see people that, not just these tip of the spears, but the people that were like totally able to understand the facilitation of the whole thing and like the behind the scenes, like I'm saying, like just all the different infrastructure, thinking about intelligence and, and uh getting materials and stuff over there. Plus people that see the budget, everybody complains about the thousand dollar hammer. Somebody writes the check for a thousand dollar hammer and that person gets out and that person is in the, in their community. And these people don't just stop existing. They take that experience and act on it often. So I think we've got a lot of potential to see something like uh, one of the cities, Philadelphia, Chicago, one of the cities where there's some issues flip or have a different type of leadership and see some change. And then people go, Oh, you know, paradigm shift. We can that would be great. And then we that's, see a, a complete shift. I think we see a lot really of optimistic going in with the racers, right? Yeah, just, that's really optimistic. I love that. I'd never heard that before. And that's a good that's a great take. Because I don't mm-hmm. think we're I don't think there's any evidence to show that we're about to tip over. I think it's a pendulum. And I think that it always looks like it's about to be at the most extreme when the pendulum swings back the other way. And we've got you know, sort of a, we got all kinds of trends and stuff. And one of them is when things get out of hand, it kind of gets back into shape again. So I think that some of this stuff that they've been putting out and the, I mean, it's not our adversaries, the people that are against us as firearms owners and the people that are just being chaotic in positions of leadership. Um, 
they're not just doing one thing poorly. They're doing so many things poorly that I think there's there's a potential you know, for corruption in a positive. That's a, that's a it's a good segue into what you've you've highlighted there with, uh, from Gun Metal Guy. Um, yeah, let's get. I'm just the 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 the, the uh, language takeover, right? I've I mentioned I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter and I follow a lot of um, a lot of disparate ca- accounts and a lot of people whose opinions I value, irrespective of their political tilt. As long as you're not like an ideologue, um, I'm I'm probably following what you have to say, and um, the 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 really obvious opinion seems to be that the leftists, not the left, not the liberals, there are lots of us out there who would consider ourselves, you know, center left or liberal or whatever that aren't leftists who aren't socialists, who aren't trying to take over society and all that stuff. They've overplayed their hand. They've, they, they, they inched and inched and inched. And then it was like, let's take two feet. And everybody was like, hell no, you're not doing that. You're not, you're not coming in and teaching woke stuff to our students. You're not going to sit there and tell me that a, a, a 12-month-old can identify his or her own gender because he's pulling hair clips out of his hair. No, we're not doing that. And now the blowback is coming. And, you, and I've seen it's happening, obviously, more on the left than the right. The right's got its own brand of crazy. Um, which definitely needs to be dealt with. Don't don't mis- mistake me. But the the vast overwhelming majority of what's happening that's afflicting this country with its disease pathogens of the mind is from the left, and it's not a close ratio. It's something like eighty five fifteen probably. And there's abandonment from the fringes, the the base, right, the political base that we always have to rally to get people to the polls or whatever. It's like those people don't exist anymore because they all fled. Your base has shrunk, and, and that's what I'm noticing is like there. I don't want to call it a red wave because I'm I don't even I don't even know what red and blue are anymore. But there's definitely a centrist movement. There's a there's an alt middle <laughs> that's that's right. rising up. And I don't know what form that's going to take. I don't think the libertarians have the the stomach or the structure or the, the leadership to pull it off or the cohesion. Um, exactly. They've not the Greens. Yeah. So the, it may take a couple of election cycles for like this, you know, alt middle party to, to assert itself in the meantime, though, the, the centrists, the former Democrats who've left the democratic party, the Republicans who have been turned off by the, by the MAGAs, have all bowed their necks and said, we are taking back our language, our culture, our values. And it's a really cool, like red, white, and blue makes purple effect happening. And it's really, really neat to see. And to that point, like these, these words that have been so overused, uh, you know, victimhood, assault, marginalized trauma. I mentioned earlier, um, racist, a uh, bigot, you know, like things that used to matter, Nazi, like things that actually have historic meaning are just tossed around like, like Kleenex. I don't, I don't know why that happened or when, but it's stopping. And and that's a cool thing. It's, it's neat to see that. And that's also encouraging. It's as encouraging as what you just said about like people coming back and, you know, maybe running for office and taking over uh, city councils and that kind of thing and going, no, you, you, no, we're going to erase some stuff and we're going to start over. You can't, unfortunately you can't rebuild statues that were torn down, but um, you can restore lots of policies. And, and I hope that, I hope that sanity 
takes root. And what I really hope is that the people who take over, those of us who are, you know, in the two standard deviations away from the mean, will not continue fighting, but just let them become irrelevant. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people out there who are angry, emotionally driven, don't have anybody's best interest in mind except for themselves. And the best way to deal with them is to set good boundaries and say, no. And then walk away. Stop engaging. And I hope that happens. That would be really cool. Those, the, that I would assume that kind of requires some sort of a monopolization of a person who they're abusing or victimizing, right? And uh, when there's yeah. a world with connection, it, I would think it's tougher and tougher for people to have that relationship with their victims, right? Hopefully. That's a different show into itself that I'm more than happy to do too, to talk about, you know, um, internal, we call it domestic violence or cycle of abuse. Um, often rooted in personality disorders of the cluster B variety. I'll go back to Josh Slocum's podcast, Disaffected, if you want to learn more about that. But um, yes, absolutely. Yep. It requires good boundaries. It requires emotionally healthy um, self-awareness. It requires good self-efficacy. It requires a foundational belief in something bigger than yourself that you can retreat to when the, when the emotional arm flapping and mouth frothing happens uh, so that you can withstand that type of attack. But now you know, when we see it happening on a broad scale, occupationally, politically, uh, geopolitically, it's really tough to stand uh, up against that because you're like, is my job threatened? You know, is HR going to call me in because I took a principled stand based on ethic and values against this horrible person who's just, you know, squawking? You know, that, those are hard, hard decisions to make. Uh, but I think the more and more of us who make them, uh, the less and less relevant the emotional hostage taking will become survivor's guilt yeah so dj put this one up it's kind of off topic but uh in some ways i guess relates a little bit i'm sure to some of the situations that are out there but anyway uh got some time to talk about survival guilt or a few words of wisdom yeah there's a different kinds of of survivor's guilt um some of it has to do with um and I don't know, DJ, but um, it, I, I'm just going to go straight to the military type of survivor's guilt where you come back from combat and you go, why was I allowed to live? And my buddies died. That's that's the, that's the a pretty common one. And it can be translated into oh, mass shootings, for example. You know, if a school shooting occurs, and you, you're left with like, well, why was I allowed to live? Um, but it, then it can trickle into um, unfairness, right? I had a, a colleague who is a child child psychiatrist, and there are very, very few child psychiatrists. It doesn't pay very well. It's very hard work. It requires a, a fellowship after residency. Um, and, and he was as healthy as they come. Um, Jason Walenta is his name. He, uh, he was 43 at the time. This was 2013 or 14. And he died of stomach cancer, got diagnosed. And then like two and a half months later, he was dead. And I mean, I, I don't even think he ate meat. I think he was a vegetarian. He ran, you know, half marathons and biked all the time. Just a health nut, stomach cancer, died. And you go, where's the justice in that, right? There's a survivor's guilt there that is a different flavor than the, the why was I allowed to live kind where it's more of a, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, you know, how do we honor people? Uh, and then there's a survivor's guilt that has to do with suicide. 
And I experienced that recently because a year ago, a colleague of mine, um, Simeon Lupo, who is a mental health professional, licensed clinical social worker, director of behavioral health at a local behavioral health inpatient hospital, former military, family, newborn baby, took his own life with a gun, his own gun. Uh, and guess what? The community just moved on. We just swept it under the rug. Nobody's done anything since. I've been in touch with his wife. We're trying to do some stuff. But um, it, you, you look around and you go, what the hell did I miss? I texted the guy a week, two weeks before this happened. We we're talking about having lunch together. Like, what did I miss? Mike Sedini talks about this with regard to his friend and former president of his company, Bill Strominger, who took his own life with a firearm. Presumably, we, we can only read between the lines because there was no note left, but presumably because he'd gotten a recent DUI and he thought that because of the DUI, he wasn't going to work in the firearms industry anymore. There's a survivor's guilt there that says, how could I have stopped this? One of the best guests we've ever had on the podcast, Matt Miller, um, PhD, by the way, director of the National uh, Veteran Suicide Prevention Program for the VA. Um, he he made he made a profound comment to me when I first interviewed him on my own podcast on Naga Notes. He says, I don't know that suicide is preventable. And it was like, needle skips off the record. And um, he says, here's why. I was... I was the mental health guy on my airbase and my best friend took his own life. And I was supposed to stop that by my job description, right? I'm paraphrasing here. It's not his words. These are mine. It was like, I don't know that it's preventable. And here's why we shouldn't talk about suicide being preventable. If we talk like suicide's preventable, it inherently implies that somebody else should be able to prevent it. Therefore, we end up leaving guilt with the people who survived, who quote-unquote should have prevented the suicide. She says, I don't know if it's preventable. I don't know if it's healthy that we we continue pushing that message. So my thoughts on survivor's guilt are this. We only act in a moment with the information we have at that moment. After we act, we obtain more information. There is no should have. There really isn't any could have. There could have been a, a, a wish I would have. That's different. But you can't should on yourself. And I did a, a YouTube video on it. It's, an, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. But you can't should on yourself. Because it invites a reality that never could have existed. Which is, I wish I'd had more information at the time I made the decision. Or didn't make the decision or whatever. Um, that's, that's the survivor's guilt. Regardless of what uh, you're surviving from if somebody actually perished or if it's just a bad decision you made and you lost time or resources uh, wishing you'd not hit on, you know, 16 in that blackjack game and you went bust and lost all your money when you were drunk at the casino, that's, that's survivor's guilt too. You're like, well, I'm still standing here, but my bank account's empty. Um, we all have moments of regret. And I would just say, I would reiterate, we only decide based on information we have at the time it's only after we make the decision that we get more information. So we don't get to say I should have because there's no way you could have. Actually, you know, by, by its definition, psychosis means that uh, it's a departure from reality. So by its very definition, shooting on yourself is psychotic. You're inviting a reality that never could have happened and pretending that it was or, or whatever 
and um, and you therefore needed to do something differently and you couldn't have. So um, just take peace um, in knowing that you did what you did in the moment that you did it, whether or not you returned the phone call, whether or not you um, picked up the, the text message or, or said the wrong thing or the right thing. You did what you did at the time based on the information you had at that moment. Only afterward do you maybe regret something, but you don't get to unring the bell. You don't get to betray your former self, uh, as Jordan Peterson said. Um, and that's what you did. And so we get to we get to encourage people to embrace the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not for the other person. It's for you uh, so that you can live in peace moving forward, uh, free to make new decisions, you know, from, from that point on. So forgive, let go, be non-attached. And that's it. Meet yourself where you are. Right on. And that's, I appreciate that because there's no way to know exactly what the, what he, where, what position, where point of view is coming from. So that was a great way to uh, cover some stuff with that. Um, I was going to ask a couple of then just general questions from back when we were, when you were chatting before, I didn't want to interrupt you for this, but have you talked to Professor David Yamane? Yes, I have. We had him on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Lovely man, okay. bought his t-shirt. I wear it proudly. It says, guns are normal. Normal people use guns. I love it. Yep. And I think that would be a good conversation to just have uh, with you and him chatting about specifically exploration into dealing with antis and maybe since with him and your experience specifically with like the research and researchers and I don't think that there's an adversarial relationship. There might be in individuals, but I think in general it's ignorance or unawareness, right? And it's just a matter of crossing bridges or figuring out filling in gaps. Then they figure out, leave us alone. And then they go worry about swimming pools or whatever else they want to research on. Right. But I don't think yeah. we got to worry about hating researchers as much as get yeah. them off our backs. Right. And yeah, then, or, or get them to research the right thing. That would be nice. Instead of separating yeah. on mass shootings, you know, maybe perseverate on suicides. I will say this, uh, Emmy, Dr. Emmy Betts, who is a psychiatrist out of Colorado who started the Colorado Gunshot Project, she gets it. Amy Barnhorst, who is another psychiatrist, Dr. Amy Barnhorst out of uh, UC Davis, she gets it. Um, they're starting to center their research more on access, which is great because it promotes responsible storage, which we're all about. And we, were, we define responsible storage as preventing unauthorized access. So whoever's unauthorized to have your gun, and it may be you at one point. Um, but that's that's cool. We're starting to see a shift there and away from the whole like control uh, sales thing. So that's neat. It's incremental, but it's getting there. Did you say Colorado Gunshot Project? Mm-hmm. Um, that's it's something that predates uh, Hold My Guns. And what the Colorado Gunshot Project is doing is it's out of the universities there, the UC system has partnered with local gun stores to hold guns for people who don't want them around in a time of crisis. And that, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a crisis. You could just be leaving town and you don't want your guns in the house. And they'll, they'll take them for you. So they've, they've promoted this map and they've studied it and they've done research and surveys. And I've, I've been a part of that. Mike's been a part of that with Emmy and her team. Uh, they're wonderful people. Um, they're, they're great. I wouldn't necessarily say they're pro 2A, um, but they're at least neutral, which is an improvement over a lot of a lot of researchers. That's awesome. I never heard of that one. 
And then I was going to ask you if you've met or talked with Kim Petters. Kim Petters was on our uh, show talking about her um, cannabis use. Uh, She got off of all psychotropics because she was using cannabis and has to, you know, walk that line. She was a great interview, too. She's awesome. She's the Delaware delegate to um, DC Project. Right on. I need to circle back with her. I haven't talked with her in like a year. Yeah, she's one of my favorites in all of Second Amendment advocacy. I mean, first off, she did an amazing service to the country. And Mm -hmm. because of that, she's uniquely able to, you know, basically, yeah. I mean, she's right at the top of the DC Project, uh, whatever. If there's the, uh, what's that superhero movie? If there's a, uh, you know, the... She's Captain Marvel. Yeah, she's going to be in the, in the team that's like when in she flies. The, she flies in space yeah. and can like stop stop ships. <laughs> she defeated uh, Thanos. Like, and then on that, well, I was going to ask you about it more from her um, PTS side, and then uh, you know just facets from there. But obviously, like you say, she's also an advocate for marijuana and firearms, the only one we really have. And on that tangent i guess have you talked have you heard of or talked with a tactical tangerine i met her i met tangy in um at katie's kevin dixie's train and learn uh, last year I, I missed it this year because we had overlapping events but um i met her at katie's train and learn but specifically at a, a panel discussion hosted by um uh uh devin perkins and um tangy's great uh but i didn't get to know her super well i I follow her on instagram and stuff and um but i haven't i haven't had sat down and like had an in-depth conversation where where are you going with that because i'd like to have her on the podcast too i just got done listening to her because i knew that she had been at kd's thing but i just listened to her on stogies and straps and stogies Stogies and straps yeah Yeah, in fact wait why the hell hasn't kd asked me to be on there I smoke cigars like that. Well, you got to go there because he sits there with you. So you have to be in Georgia, I guess. Is he in Georgia? Oh, we could do it over Zoom. Well, that's true. That would be interesting. Maybe anyway. I'll fly him to Reno. I don't think he's been to Reno yet. So you have met everybody then. So uh, that would be neat to have a couple. Of, or I would definitely be interested in hosting some conversations so that you all could just have a non-agenda-based uh, conversation, a roundtable, whatever. Uh, that so would be that- amazing. Actually, what we should do is, like you were saying earlier, with um, with the idea of like just just gathering everybody in person and throw a mic in the middle, you know, or several mics, or however we want to do it. But but the point is, like, just open it up, have a twelve person podcast, and um, and just ping off each other. Uh, throw Ed Granty on in there, sure. and you know, like yeah. get some Rob Pinkus just so people can fight. <laughs> And like I say, without having necessarily an agenda like um, or a focus on news Mm -hmm. of the day, because although there's news of the day, I think we win when we start to take that in stride, realize that our opponents aren't our adversaries. They're just ignorant. Once we can educate them, we've accomplished two things. We've we've educated our next generation at the same time we've told them we've showed them that we win through education. And then we educated our adversaries and they can go spend all that attention and money on something that's important. Swimming pool deaths or ATF is alcohol. What is that? 200,000 deaths, 500,000 deaths. And then tobacco is 500,000 deaths. 
and then firearms with overdoses just overdoses just cracked a hundred thousand for the first time in history last year that's yeah, a really sad I'm milestone yeah. i'm saying ATS yeah, i know yeah right yeah. They, they take two giant vices and then stick them in there with explosives and then us to marginalize us but you're right the, the whole fentanyl thing um i've seen a couple of comparisons that just you know, when you kind of mentioned alluded to it when you were talking about the numbers earlier but you know firearms are in the grand scheme of things nothing compared to health and they're very little compared to accidents and we're about the same as cars depending on how you look at it if you include suicides we're the same as cars yep yep well yeah. I, I, don't, I don't want to keep you all night i'd appreciate you jumping in on a monday to have a conversation with us and to uh um bounce some of the stuff uh kind of uh out of nowhere he didn't have a script or any kind of pre-warning so thanks for uh being flexible and adaptive and thanks to everybody who showed up live to throw some questions out there do appreciate it uh there's 149 or so people that sponsor what i do they they throw a couple of bucks at me each month uh some of them buy me a cup of coffee some of them uh, buy a lunch and that adds up and i'm able to spend my time doing this instead of trying to get you to buy some new grip angle or some kind of red dot optic or whatever you go do whatever you're going to do. We're going to keep talking about 2A. And uh, um, where was I going with that? I think we're going to just wrap it up. I'm not going to put a lot of my exit stuff in here, but I did want to throw one question at you. I've been asking people what book they might recommend. So let me, I'm going to start throwing another question out there since this is the Daily Gun Show. Do you have a gun show story? Hmm. So with the, with the qualifier that I... Um... I wasn't really into the gun community until 2019 and I went to my first real actual gun conference in fall and then my first gun show in uh, you know January of 2020. Um, I will say that I, I was, I didn't get it. So I was raised in a household full of cops and a family full of cops. And so the gun was always like a tool of the job we hunted and the, you know, the rifle was the tool of taking down the animal. I didn't get gun culture at all, like at all, at all. And I was one of those, you know, 2A comma butt type of guys uh, who nobody needs an AR-15. I owned one, but I was like, nobody really needs one. And then I went to shot after GRPC and I got it. I, I really got it. Um, several conversations, but the experience overall is uh, left me with two impressions. One, these people are super, super, super nice and very, very smart. And they're super, super, super diverse, like in every definition of the word. So my gun show story is that I was educated without intending to be educated. I went there to educate because I was the mental health dude. And instead, I got I got rocked. I got absolutely put on my heels with the level of intelligence and purpose and knowledge and diversity of the global gun community. Um, it was very, very impressive. So, and, and the fact that I was welcomed in ignorant as I was, um, I think speaks volumes of, of our people. I think that's really cool. I'll throw another book though. So I mentioned Christian Conti's book, but I'll, I'll leave with another book. That's not, um, psychotherapy based. It's really inspiring. Uh, it's, it's a book called factfulness by a guy named Hans Rosling, R-O-S-L-I-N-G, H-A-N-S is his name, Hans Rosling, factfulness. Pick that up, read it. It's very good. It's an easy read and it gives hope because the world is not as bad as we think it is. And he has data to prove it. 
Oh, that sounds cool. Trying to talk and type at the same time, but I think I found it. <laughs> I'll uh, put it in here when it's when it's over. So it sounds cool, though. That uh, so you're basically saying Shot Show is the gun show story. So it's cool then yep. that um, you know doing your path or whatever and decisions you made got you to that point. And I've known from listening to your conversations in other people's podcasts and just being in other conversations that uh, once you had that epiphany or that realization or at the same time you were having that i don't know exactly the timeline but you were able to take that enthusiasm over to the medical side of it so as much as walk the talk america is here for the firearms community and we're talking about the aspects of walk the talk america that interact or interface with the firearms community the efforts that you've made and you've expressed you know that accomplished on the other side uh getting physicians to realize that the firearm owners, for example, have uh, apprehension about going in to seek medical help or help because we don't know, period, period, like we don't know. There's unknowns mm -hmm. there. And once you've uh, illuminated them, they've made efforts or you've helped them make efforts to uh, become aware of that. You've got a, we didn't really talk about it tonight, but you've done a, because we I didn't really let you, but you've made a course that allows physicians to become aware if they want to, of, I forget the words, but basically gun culture effectively. Yep. Right? yep. So yeah, then exactly that. And those, and those are available uh, on our website. So if you happen to be, you know, uh, curiously listening in the closet, like I was, if you're in the medical or mental health community and you want to learn more about gun culture, uh, probably if you're listening to this, you do know about gun culture, but if you want to learn about how, to apply that knowledge in your clinical practice, reach out to me. Um, I'd be happy to guide you through my own journey and how to do it tactfully so that you're not, you know, risking your career if your boss perhaps doesn't appreciate it as much as you or I do. Or if you're in a university setting where it's, you know, super ultra woke and they don't like guns or whatever, um, how you can maybe broach the subject like David Yamani has in his coursework. Um, that's, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm, I'm more than happy to help mentor people through that, that process. Cause it can be a little spooky. Yeah, that's awesome. That's all I'm saying. That's it's cool that you were there to be able to be there. Cause without you there, then we'd still have that rift, that divide and that on, no one would know what they didn't know. And we'd still be dealing with that. I so call it a self-imposed chasm. Both, both sides are digging the, digging the chasm between us and, and nobody wants to walk across the bridge and, um, I see Walk the Talk America as being that, that like Indiana Jones uh, Last Crusade bridge where you like step off and it's like oh there it is. Um, that's that's what we're trying to do is is bridge the gap truly uh, so that we can all talk and uh, it takes a, a little bit of courage to take that first step from from both sides. I don't like the both sides thing, but but there are two sides and and um, and one side is <laughs> way more eager to engage than the other. I will say at this point. So hopefully the the medical slash mental side comes full, comes to the table a little quicker and a little more in volume. Right on. Well, thanks again. And thanks again, everybody, for showing up. If you're listening in the future as podcast or uh, as uh, one of the videos out there, then uh, leave us some feedback. And all the links to the Walk Talk America, to the uh, your Substack, to your Twitter, and... Uh, well, I don't think I have a link to the podcast, but I'll put a link to the podcast and a couple of the books that we've mentioned tonight. 
It's on. It's wherever podcasts are found. It's just called Guns and Mental Health. We're, we're the only one out there. <laughs> the Thanks for having me. But I guess I should put an ending on here just so it sounds like something. Yeah, drop in some music. Tonight's episode, Photo Finish. Thank you for supporting our projects. If you'd like to buy us a cup of coffee, check out our Patreon channel. The guys and gals at gunwebsites.com encourage you to take a CCW class every year, practice at least once a month, and carry every day. Thank you for watching gunwebsites.com. Do, 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 do.